Okay, and a very good evening to everybody, and welcome back. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 75, uh, and we are still in the Dell under Weathertop, having enjoyed several weeks' worth of poetry and discussion, which has been fantastic, and we are now getting ready to uh, actually go- return to the action here tonight uh, and uh, get into the attack by the Ringwraiths on Frodo and the company under Weathertop. This is a really important scene for a lot of reasons, and I think that that... Well, okay. I'm going to say boldly, I think a lot of people misunderstand this passage, and I uh, say that with some confidence because I know I'm one of them uh, who has often, uh, for much of my life, misunderstood this uh, uh, passage, and I've been reconsidering this passage sort of again and again. So um, I think we learn a lot in this passage, so let's see what we learn together. Uh, as we are studying uh, this passage here tonight. But first, before we begin, I do have some announcements because we are coming up on a very exciting time uh, because it is September. It is almost Bilbo's birthday, and that means it's almost time for the fall fundraising campaign for Signum University. Uh, It is time to keep Signum running for another year. We've had such an exciting year this year as we're working through our credentialing process, achieving program approval in the state of New Hampshire, which was super exciting, and we're now on enthusiastically on to the next step. So um, lots of stuff going on, uh, and uh, looking forward to uh, uh, doing some special stuff with you guys. So let me just draw your attention to a couple things quick. Uh, first, um, there's the, uh, uh, the... So there are three major kind of framing events uh, of the fundraising campaign. We're going to do a bunch of things during class as well. Those of you who were around last year may remember this, where we did special like giveaways and stuff and everything during our... like So during Exploring the Lord of the Rings, um, during the fundraising campaign, we'll do some special fundraising stuff. And I'll talk about that next week. But for this week... Um, uh, I just want to draw your attention to the three major events, as I said, kind of the the structuring events of the fundraising campaign. Uh, first, to open the campaign, we are going to have uh, our friend, and this is new, we didn't do this before, uh, we're going to do a Hobbit Day reading event, uh, which is going to be fun. I'm going to uh, read several passages, uh, se- several passages of Tolkien. I'm just going to read a few long passages, uh, and then going to talk about them. Um, and I'm going to talk about them with uh, some friends, going to have some, uh, some, some other, some colleagues, some, uh, uh, you know, a, a bunch of different kinds of people who are going to be coming in to join me, just not having a, you know, sort of the goal isn't really a sort of a high level scholarly discussion, um, more of a, uh, more of a fan discussion with other scholars and other students of Tolkien as we talk about, uh, some of these passages, what we like about them, what they've meant to us and all that kind of thing. Uh, I'm definitely going to read, for instance, one of the passages I'm going to read is from the fall of Gondolin to celebrate the publication of the fall of Gondolin recently. Um, Anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna read uh, some Tolkien passages, talk about some Tolkien passages, but then also we're gonna do a couple other things too. We're gonna read a passage from uh, from Harry Potter, talk about that uh, that and so the whole uh, <clears throat> Harry Potter phenomenon as well, and then we're gonna also do a passage from Ursula Le Guin in honor of Ursula Le Guin's passing earlier this year. Uh, so we're gonna be talking about that too. So we're gonna have a, a, a varied program, reading a bunch of different passages of different kinds, uh, and talking with a bunch of people about what, you know, sort of the impact that these things have had on our lives uh, over the last, uh, you know, many years. So uh, so this is going to be uh, on this coming Saturday. So this coming Saturday, September 22nd, 3 to 5 p.m. 
Eastern time. So this is at a Europe friendly time. So for those uh, poor Europeans who are all tucked up in their beds now, uh, it, it will be at a reasonable time for them to watch. So I hope everybody will be able to, uh, to join us for that. Uh, and then secondly, the week after that, so this coming Saturday is our uh, kickoff reading event. Uh, the next Saturday, the 29th, is going to be my annual and now traditional Lord of the Rings Online marathon. So I've been doing a marathon playing session of the Lord of the Rings Online uh, for several years. Uh, uh, I Was it... Was was my mad dash through Moria the first time I did that? I can't remember if that was first or only the most memorable. But uh, but anyway, I'm going to take Wigand, my primary character, my original character, uh, who is level 92. Now he's like level 92 and uh, 99 one hundredths. Uh, it was funny. I was uh, Wigand showed up at uh, Ales and Tales last night, uh, hosted by the Lonely Mountain Band on Landreval, uh, as I was uh, you know giving a talk to them and and uh, hanging out with them for a while and so I, was, I, I showed up as Wigand here in the lore hall and everyone was really bothered by the fact that he had like he was missing like 20,000 XP uh, for level 93 I mean his XP bar was almost to the very edge and they were like I can't even look at that like it, 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 was, it was really troubling to a lot of people uh, which I didn't fully anticipate anyhow poor Wigand needs a boost so what we're, what we're going to do so next Saturday on the 29th uh, poor Wigan is still where I left him last year, essentially. I have not had time. Again, lots of stuff going on at Signum this year. I haven't had much time to play. So uh, so Wigan is still at the door uh, of the Pads of the Dead, dragging his feet like Gimli, except Gimli only dragged his feet for a few seconds. Wigan has been dragging his feet for an entire year. So uh, he's going to cross the threshold finally, and he's going to enter the Pads of the Dead, and I'm going to take him as far through Gondor as I possibly can. I'm going to focus on the epic quest line, uh, and I'm going to run it. I'm going to I'm going to go through and I'm going to see as much of Gondor as I can, uh, sort of see the shape of the quest lines that they are, that you know, the, the story that they build through Gondor, and try to get as close as I can get to Minas Tirith. I'm, I, I, I'm really keen to get to the Battle of Pelennor Field, and of course, eventually, maybe, who knows, catch up with... Uh, the rest of the game, though goodness knows the developers have been putting out material faster than I can play it uh, <laughs> because of the amount of time I have. Um, but um, anyway, it's going to be fun. Yeah, Hologram, I'm going to do some XP boosting. Uh, he'll be uh, he'll be good. We'll 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 see what we can do. Um, uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, I, I but I'm I'm confident in Wigan Hologram. This is my guardian. Remember, right? So like under level is the way he rolls it's it's all good anyhow so um uh so what we're gonna do is again i'm just gonna go as far as i can do that night so i'm gonna do i don't know what like 12 hours uh of uh wigan marathon on the 29th so hope you'll be able to join me for that uh and then our final event of the campaign so we have the 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 tolkien uh the hobbit day reading event on the 22nd, this Saturday uh, at 3 o'clock. And then we have the Wigand Marathon uh, starting at noon Eastern time on uh, the 29th. And then on the 13th, October 13th, uh, Saturday, October 13th, is going to be the uh, traditional end-of-campaign webathon. So we're going to be uh, do, again, broadcasting that whole day, special sessions and talks and guests and readings and uh, 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 Lotro playing and special classes and all kinds of things. So uh, it's going to be uh, uh, it's going to be, uh, as always, the Webathon is is uh, 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 great fun. So um, 
Anyway, that's what that, those are some of the things that are coming up next week. As I said, I'll, I'll talk to you guys a little bit more about the, the fundraising stuff and some of the, some of the rewards and, uh, uh, and gifts and things that we have for you guys to thank you guys as always, uh, for your very generous support upon which we rely very heavily at Signum university. So, uh, thank you so much for supporting us for another year. And we look forward to another awesome campaign this year. Um, but okay. Um, so let's, um, let's see. Uh, Okay, I see. Lincoln is wondering uh, how we, uh, how come the two classes we spent discussing the Baron and Luthien story, we cover the most material in class that we have in months. You mean most number of slides? Yeah. Well, yeah, we did. We did. Well, of course, Lincoln. Part of that is that although it was poetry, it was also fewer words per slide than many of our other slides. So that helps a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it also helps. I mean, even though of course we go through the poem stanza by stanza, nevertheless, it's still, um, it's still one unit, right? So, um, even though I have, you know, five slides, uh, I, you know, I, I had divided the poem onto five different slides. It's not like five slides in a normal, class, right? It was really one unit. And of course, Lincoln, I also cheated, right? By going like three hours for that first class. Uh, but anyhow, all right. Um, uh, so, uh, so we're going to be fine. Oh yeah. See Sharon, you don't have to worry in my Lotro marathon this year. You don't have to worry about Muma kill jumping out of the bushes. Cause I mean, they do that. I mean, they lurk. I, you, we've seen it, right? I mean, they, they like hide in the bushes and then they spring out and try and trample you, but I'm going to be on my guardian. And so, you know, he's like, Oh, practically indestructible. So it's, it's, uh, it's all good. Um, right. Hologrown, nothing to worry about, right? Nothing to worry about. <laughs> no, I see your vote of confidence, and I appreciate that. So that's good. Um, uh, yeah, mad violinists—they are related to jaguars. Yeah, you can't. You gotta be. You gotta be careful uh, with those. Um, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, they're, they're they're more. Yeah, they're 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 sort of they're uh, they're more like heffalumps than woozles, Brandon. Exactly. Okay. Um, so let's get back to our text. Uh, shall we? Because, again, exciting action. And that's an interesting thing, right? I was about to say exciting action is about to ensue, except the most striking thing about this passage is that it doesn't... This is one of the things. The Even if you totally forget about the film, right? Even if, the, even if you've never seen the Peter Jackson film in your entire life, you are very likely to remember this scene that is the attack on the Dell under Weathertop by the Ringwraiths as much more action-packed than it actually is. Um, one of the things that I find so fascinating about it when you stop and, and read it carefully and look at it slowly is how little actually happens. That is to say, I mean, it's a significant event, lots of things happen, and yet, if you were, like, an outside observer, if you were watching like a security camera footage of the Dell attack on the Dell under, uh, under weather, you'd see almost nothing. Right. And I don't just mean because some of the principles are invisible. Right. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not cheating that way. Even with full view of the invisible folks, 
very little happens. Not nothing. I mean, there is a stabbing, right? That's a legitimate piece of action. But apart from the stabbing, almost nothing happens uh, in this chapter. And yet it is full of action and drama, but a particular kind of action and drama. And that is, I think, one of the most important things uh, for us to for us to focus on, for us to be seeing as we go through. But let's stop blathering about uh, in general terms about the text and let us actually look at the uh, text. So tonight, when ring rates attack, um, what is that like exactly? How do ring rates attack? And if ring rates are attacking you, what do you do? Like we need to write a little book, right? How to survive uh, uh, the the what was that like the survivor's guide? Those little yellow books that used to be popular briefly, right? Uh, you know, how do you survive a ringwraith attack uh, in the wilderness? Uh, we should be able to write a little handbook uh, after today's class, hopefully. So, whoa. Okay, I'm not going to quite go that fast. All right, here we are. Now, this is what comes immediately after Strider's, um, Strider's prose description, right? His prose synopsis of the uh, Baron and Luthien story. As Strider was speaking, they watched his strange, eager face, dimly lit in the red glow of the wood fire. His eyes shone, and his voice rich, uh, and his voice was rich and deep. Above him was a black, starry sky. Suddenly a pale light appeared over the crown of Weathertop behind him. The waxing moon was climbing slowly above the hill that overshadowed them, and the stars above the hilltop faded. The story ended. The hobbits moved and stretched. Look, said Mary, the moon is rising. It must be getting late. The others looked up. Even as they did so, they saw on the top of the hill something small and dark against the glimmer of the moonrise. It was, perhaps, only a large stone or jutting rock shown up by the pale light. Perhaps. It might be. You can't totally rule out the possibility that what they were seeing was a large stone or jutting rock shown up by the pale light. Um, it is, of course, conceivable. This is one of the most noticeable narrator interventions uh, that I think we've seen in a while. Remember, we've been looking for those, right? Those moments when you can hear the narrator's voice and sort of see the narrator's touch here. And this is totally, uh, uh, totally one of those moments, right? It was perhaps... Uh, come on now. There's no perhaps about this. Uh, the narrator that is Frodo or Sam is going to be fairly confident in retrospect what that was, right? Um, Mike thinks that this is Frodo, not Sam. <clears throat> I am inclined to agree. I'm inclined to agree. Um, uh, what is, what is this, uh, um, what is this that we're getting here? Why, why say this? Why does the narrator be it Frodo or Sam? And I, I agree, Mike, my impulse would be to say Frodo as well. Um, why do this? Why tell it this way, right? Um, there's a hint of... Uh, there's a hint of... Um, um, I don't know, disingenuousness about that moment, right? You know, when the narrator's like, yeah, maybe it was, could have been, probably wasn't, but I'm not going to tell you, right? Um, I think... And the way that this reads to me is that the narrator, whether we think of the narrator as, as Tolkien, the writer, or whether we think of the narrator as Frodo, uh, who wrote the text, um, or even, you know, Findegill, uh, King's writer, um, 
the the tone of that sentence or the 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 purpose of that sentence seems to me to be to put us as readers in the position of the hobbits right that is looking around and wondering and being unsure right uh, a totally omniscient narrator or at least a narrator speaking in an omniscient voice would um would wreck the feeling of this scene right it's not just enough to tell us what's happening here um it it, the, the the goal is exactly Sharon giving voice to the thoughts of the hobbits, right? Um, and this would be especially, this would be sort of least disingenuous of all, right? If we think about this from the point of view of Frodo the narrator, right? Um, it was perhaps only a large stone or jutting rock shown up by the pale light. May very well be what he thought to himself at the time, right? In an attempt uh, to reassure himself and not get too worried. Now. I don't know necessarily, right? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm implying by the jokes that I'm making that it's almost certainly a black writer, and that the narrator or the, you know, the narrator whose perspective, um, you know, the, the the Hobbit whose perspective the narrator is taking, um, is um, is is simply, uh, 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 you know, sort of messing with us here. However. It could be a rock, right? The point is they they're they are afraid, and their fear is making them look at everything uh askance, right? The the black riders really are closing in, right? The ring rates are genuinely coming. It's not like they're just making stuff up. But they don't they really don't know, in fact, uh whether the black you know, whether it's the black riders or whether that's the black riders or are they over there, right? Um and it's not just because it's dark. This is a product of how the Black Riders are working on them. What we are seeing are the Black Riders taking effect. This is important, I think, for more than simply artistic purposes. It's important for an art for artistic purposes. That is to say, uh, Tolkien as writer, Frodo as narrator are both creating uh, uh, an important effect through this. But there's more to it than that. The ringwraiths are attacking. Right now, the ringwraiths are attacking. The ringwraiths' attack begins as soon as Strider stops speaking. Right? And we can see that happen. The story ended. The hobbits moved and stretched. Look, said Mary, the moon is rising. It must be getting late. The others looked up. Even as they did so, they saw on the top of the hill something small and dark against the glimmer of the moonrise. As soon as they look up, right? So they're, they're moving and stretching you know, stretching as if they're waking up from sleep, right? And it's been so long that now the, the, the moon is rising. Notice it's most of the way through the night. It must be getting late, Mary says, right? So, um, you know, this is, uh, uh, this is, the story has gone on for a while, right? And he has, uh, uh, Strider has kept them off for quite a while. Um, but notice how the fear grips them right away. Um, in a sense, whether that thing, the small dark thing on the top of the hill, is a ringwraith or not, doesn't matter, right? What matters is that we are being shown their fear, that we're being shown their point of view, because that is, that is their attack. They're not going to come in. Do the ringwraiths? The ringwraiths don't use swords, 
<laughs> they don't attack. There's nobody. Again, all due respect to Peter Jackson's adaptation of this scene, which I can totally get behind. I don't fault Peter Jackson. You know, there are a lot of things that I complain about about Peter Jackson. I don't complain about uh, his treatment of the Weathertop scene much. Um, it makes sense. It makes sense. And if I were adapting it, I might possibly... I, no, okay, I wouldn't do the same thing. But but I, it's defensible. I think it's defensible, what he did with it. Um, what Tolkien is depicting here is super difficult to do on screen. Um, and taking this... What we are going to see is an almost entirely spiritual battle between the Ringwraiths and Aragorn and the Hobbits, uh, and sort of translating that into a physical battle in which Aragorn comes in with a torch in one hand and his sword in the other hand and sword fights uh, the Wraiths and physically sets them on fire makes sense. It makes sense as a way to kind of translate that into a visual uh, medium. But, but, um, but again, it's important for us to realize the Ringwraith's weapon is fear. The fear that suddenly grips the hobbits when they look up and see this thing. Whether it's a rider or whether it's a rock, it doesn't matter. The fear that grips them shows the attack has begun. It's not about to, to begin. It has begun. This is it. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to skip over the first paragraph. Um, uh Somebody was saying earlier on, um, and Matthew, you're absolutely right, um, that um, that uh, we know from Crick Hollow that when they close in, they close in extremely slowly so they could easily be mistaken for rocks. Yeah, yeah. They move, they move somewhere between, between the speeds of, uh, of, you know, glaciers moving and, uh, uh, you know, rocks settling over the years. No, I mean, they're very patient, as we saw. Um, let's stand here and wait literally for hours is totally their move, right? Um, again, it's not just, we're going to postpone our attack for hours. It is their attack, right? When they are investing the place with this increasing and increasingly intolerable pressure of fear, that's the ring rates attacking. That's what it looks like. Um, anyway, okay. Um, yeah. Er- Eric was pointing out something similar about uh, standing there, the, the, them attacking this the same way they, they did Crick Hollow. Yeah. Um, but... Um, I want to go back to, let's see, somebody way earlier on talking about Aragorn. Yes, Fourth Dauntless, saying, I think we get here the first glimpse of Aragorn, King of Gondor in exile. Yeah, I agree. I agree. In this, um, uh, in this first paragraph there, um, yes, we have heard him... He's had, you know, we've, we've talked, of course, we spent a lot of time talking about Strider's different persona, right? And in particular, the very active front that he puts up in Bree, um, even apparently to fake speech, like a fake accent that he puts on, um, is how I understand Frodo's words that we talked about. Um, you know, you don't, you started off talking like the Brelanders and now you're not, right? Um, he dropped his accent, he dropped his dialect. dialect. Um, anyway... We've seen him put, and, and we've seen him refer to that persona in the third person, right? Talking about Strider. 
but I'm but I agree with you, Fourth Dauntless. We've not seen like the real Aragorn, right? We've seen Strider, the vagabond ranger, right? Uh, uh, we've seen you know Longshanks and Stick It Not Strider. Uh, that's unjust, right? That insult by Bill Fernie is unjust, not to mention hypocritical. But um, it's it's also fitting, right? I mean, it's it's he's been cultivating, if not exactly that reputation, a reputation which might make that particular shoe look like it fits, right? So uh, you know, uh, you know, he does have a rather rascally look, doesn't he? Right. Um, so we've got Strider the Rascal. Persona number one. Persona number two, though, wasn't exactly Aragorn, son of Arathorn, you know, uh, uh, heir of, of Numenor, right? Um, it was like Strider, the elf friend, friend of Gandalf, right? And it was still not really clear. Remember, uh, uh, Frodo is going to be surprised when he learns that Strider is one of the old kings, right? He's not even gotten that. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't process that at all. Um, so, okay, he's not a rascal. He's not a criminal. You know, he's not, uh, you know, dodgy. He's, uh, he's an elf friend. He's Gandalf's friend. He's trustworthy uh, and skilled in the wild. Oh, okay, great. All right. And apparently learned in old lore as they're learning here, right? And he's been to Rivendell. But again, elf friend, that fits, right? Okay, elf friend, he's been to Rivendell. He's uh, learned lots of things. That's, of course, going to be something that the hobbits are going to, wouldn't you think? The hobbits would take that for granted, right? That is to say, take for granted that if you have been, if you are an elf friend and have been to Rivendell, the logical conclusion is that you're going to become learned. Right? Because they have exactly one prototype for that. Right? Look what happened to Bilbo. Right? Bilbo goes off and he becomes, he visits Rivendell and he becomes an elf friend. And then what happens? Right? Next thing you know, the dude is composing uh, uh, poetry and, and telling stories of the elder days and like translating stuff into and out of Elvish. So, yeah, I mean, like it's what happens. Like when you become an elf friend and visit Rivendell. So when he's like, yeah, I've been to Rivendell and, and, and they know, and you know, they know he's an elf friend and a friend and friend of Gandalf, then sure. Okay, yeah, learn it in old lore. That that fits. It makes sense. But yes, um, I do think that what we are seeing peeking out here is the uh, um, the strange eagerness of his face. The eagerness, I think, is the really important thing, right? Um, the line of Tenuvio, remember, is what he's just been talking about. Um and there he is talking about his inheritance, right? He is thinking about his inheritance. And he's thinking about Arwen, of course. But he's also thinking about his inheritance. It's not just, it's not only, I'm thinking about my girlfriend, right? That he, like, makes him look all dreamy and eager, right? Uh, I mean, there's that, too. Uh, but there's more than that as well. This is also his entire heritage. And, of course, those two things are all wrapped up together. Um, and the first hand you've got like his girlfriend who looks just like Luthien, which is a good look. And then on the other hand, you've got, and she's of course a close descendant of Luthien. And then you've got his line through Luthien that goes all the way back to Luthien, but all the way through the Numenorean Kings, um, uh, which is also very important to him personally. And of course the two things are directly linked because only when he has attained uh, the throne and restored the honor of his line, will he be granted the hand of Arwen in marriage? So, you know, it all, it all kind of comes together there. But I, but I, I think again, if, if we imagine, 
him here to be only him Strider to be only thinking about um you know I'm thinking about Baron and Luthien. I'm thinking about me and Arwen. I'm having a little like private romantic reverie here. Yes, he is, but it's more than that. It's not only that, and I think we can we can we'll miss stuff if we think only of that. Um, but um, uh, okay, all right. Let's keep going here. Um, yeah, uh, above him was a black starry sky. Oh, uh, Tom, you had a really good comment about this. I'm looking. Sorry, I'm scattered all over the place here tonight. Um, yeah, so Tom was saying he's trying to decide if there's anything to be made of the fading of the stars uh, and the attack of the wraiths. Um, when thinking back to, to Gildor's folk singing to the stars uh, and the wraiths running away. I mean, it's... The, the connection is attractive. I agree, Tom. I mean, the thing I'm resistant to here is that of course, the, the stars fade um, because the moon comes out and the moon is bright, right? So the idea that the coming of the moon is... So the sort of reversal, right? Elves singing as the stars come out. Elves, the elf singing being associated with both the flight of the ringwraiths and the emergence of the stars, right? We, we saw both of those associations with the singing of Gildor's people back in chapter three. Um, and so the idea that his song, or Aragorn's song and, so, and story ceases and the stars go away and the ring rates come. So if you just kind of plot it out like that, they look like symmetrical opposites, right? But it doesn't, I don't think it works really well when you kind of put a little bit more pressure on it, though, because, again, it's the stars are only going away because the moon's rising. And I can't think that, like, moonrise is a bad thing. You know, like, and this signifies the, like, dominion, the time of the dominion of the ring rates. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Even though, okay, moonrise, we get the whole Minas Ithil connection, but, again, they're not... Uh, they're not associated with the moon. They corrupted the Tower of the Moon, right? It's not the Tower of the Moon anymore. Uh, they wrecked the Tower of the Moon. So, um, so I don't think that that, uh, that that would work either. So I'm not quite sure what to make of it, uh, Tom. I mean, the significance of the stars um, above him was a black starry sky. Um, definitely, um, uh, definitely um, seems important, right? Um, at least as sort of the framing of Aragorn's story, right? One thing I guess I will say, Tom, it's not about the parallel exactly. What this kind of makes me think of, it's almost like a recapitulation of the rising of the moon, right? Like Aragorn being framed in a black starry sky is almost like a brief memory of the elder days, right? Before the rising of the sun and moon. Um, so something like a brief, uh, a brief glimpse at or recollection of the days of comparative peace, right? While Melkor was bound before Melkor's unchaining, uh, and the tempestuous events which followed and which led to, among other things, the uh, the the making of the sun and moon in response. I, you know, it's again, I I I I don't lean too hard there on that parallel either. Again, like implying like the rising of the moon is a bad thing or allied with evil or something. It doesn't really work. But but the glimpse of 
Strider telling the story just under a black starry sky with no moon and no sun in it is a little bit of a callback. That seems to me a little bit safer. Um, You know, we're getting this little breath of the ancient world here, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Matt, I agree. It isn't quite moonrise. The moon has been up for hours, but blocked by weather top. Yeah. Um, right. Exactly. It's only moonrise because they're way under the, they're way under a really, really tall hill. It's true. Um, though again, it, it's like moonrise, right? The way that the stars fade as the moon comes into view. So, um, yeah. And I rendis, yeah, absolutely. Several of you are, are, uh, are reminding me that um, stars on a black field also nicely recall uh, the stars of of the Dunedain, right? The symbol of, uh, you know, the the standard, the battle standard that Aragorn will one day raise as king, right? So, um, so yes, that vis- that little vision, that little glimpse that we get of Aragorn's face framed by the black starry sky, you know, the black starry sky looming up above above his head is like the standard that he's going to raise. I like that. I like that. Again, especially since, uh, as I was very strongly agreeing with Fourth Dauntless, we are, I think, getting a glimpse of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, um, future king of Gondor here um, in uh, in this passage, I think, really for the first time. Um, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, Mad Violinist is remembering Bombadil's story that ended under the stars. Yeah, that's within the text of the Fellowship of the Ring itself. That's the clearest um, thing, right? I mean, I'm was referring straight back to the Silmarillion, but we have seen that, right? We have gotten that glimpse of just um, the black starry skies back at the beginning and associated with the oldest of days by Tom Bombadil, which seemed to be a time of peace right before the dark Lord came from outside. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's some, there's some chronology issues there, but still um, that, that concept of the black starry skies being associated with a very ancient and yet peaceful time. Uh, I think we can get from Tom Bombadil's vision there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, oh, Ardent Crayon, you had you were asked a really good question here on Twitter before. Good to see you again, by the way. I've not seen you on Twitter for a while. Um, but anyway, I I I was uh, there was I I forgotten it. But like two comments ago, you asked a really interesting question that I was going to address, but I was in the middle of something and now I've forgotten. So. Post the really interesting thing that you were just recently talking about, uh, and just start reposting things, uh, and I'll I'll see it again. Um, yeah, yeah. Ah, interesting. Harnuth says that you know if you just look at a, the a bit of that sentence, right? Uh, a pale light appeared over the crown uh, again, like that. The, the word the choice of the word crown uh, as we are looking up above Aragorn's head here seems perhaps more than purely coincidental. Yeah, yeah. No, I you know I hear that. I hear that. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, several people have been asking: Did Aragorn's story? keep them away. Like, have the Black Riders been 
like waiting for the Baron and Luthien story to end before they could attack. On the one hand, it's hard to say. On the one hand, uh, you could argue, no, this is their M.O., right? This is what they do. This is this is how they operate. Um, this is how they operate. They, um, they creep up, stand there, fill the place with fear, right? And then will apparently move in at the end. At least that's what they did at Crick Hollow. Um, so the fact that they've surrounded the camp and are just standing there for a really long time is not a priori proof that they're being held off, right? This is just could be just part of the offensive, right? Um, you are not repelling me. I'm just choosing not to attack yet, right? Could very well be the Ringwraith's uh, repost uh, to any suggestion that they are being repelled by the story of Baron and Luthien. However... What I think is unquestionable is that if they have been attacking, it's not been working, right? We know that their attack takes the form of this, like, stifling fear that is supposed to be building, and it hasn't been, right? The hobbits have been effectually protected by Strider and his song and his story, from the fear of the Ringwraith. It's very clear from how they're moving and stretching from Mary's comment, right? The moon is rising. It must be getting late. This is not how somebody who has been under spiritual assault by the Ringwraith for several hours would speak, right? Uh, So whether they're waiting to attack or whether they are attempting to attack, but their attack has been foiled, either way, it kind of looks exactly the same, in fact, in either case. Um, But I do think it's pretty clear that the Ringwraith's spiritual assault is not able to start until after he finishes the story of Baron and Luthien. I don't think it's a coincidence. Certainly. You know, there is one possible reading of it, right? Which says, they just happen to show up then, right? So he's been telling the story of Baron and Luthien and by coincidence, just when he finishes the story of Baron and Luthien is when they happen to show up, right? And then they start attacking. Um, that reading, I reject. I, that, I, I, I don't believe that at all. Um, especially since I think um, uh, uh, especially since I think that we um, uh, we have some reason to think that Strider already knew they were there and possibly in earshot uh, right before, uh, before he started his story. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Hope and courage counter fear, uh, Matt. That's exactly it. Um, And the fact is, and again, this is the thing that's important to think about. This is why my own reading of this passage increasingly is, it's not that the, the, the story has prevented them from beginning their attack. They have begun their... The fight has been going on. The entire time, Aragorn has been talking to them. They've been fighting. It's just that Aragorn's been winning, right? Um, The conflict is already underway because the conflict is always and from the beginning um, a, a, a spiritual conflict. It's the conflict between hope and fear, right? Um, And... Uh, and... So far, 
hope as long as he's been telling the story of Baron and Luthien, hope has been winning, right? Um, and uh, fear has been held at bay. Now again, it's, so it's not that the attack is starting; it's just that now, for the first time, they're really uh, they're really aware of it. Um, yeah, Blue is it exactly? I, she says I can't imagine Strider would have taken the time to tell that story at that particular time if it didn't have an effect on the battle. No, exactly. He knows what he's doing. I I believe very much he knows what he's doing. Um, think how careful he is in selecting which story he's going to tell. When we talked about this, right? When he rejects the story of Gilgalad and instead goes to the story of Baron and Luthien, um, there are um, there are good reasons for that. James Lieback says he is a mighty singer then. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd buy that. I mean, it's, it's, he's not a mighty singer in the same way that Tom Bombadil, uh, is a mighty singer or even old man Willow of whom Tom Bombadil said that. Right. Um, but yeah, no, there's definitely power in Aragorn's song. Absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, JJ is quoting Ephesians 6, uh, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is that kind of battle. Absolutely. And if you don't understand the conflict with the ring wraiths, um, uh, in these in, in in these kinds of terms, like in the in the terms of of spiritual conflict like this, then I it, I I think it's fairly clear that you're not getting the uh, 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 the ring wraiths really. Um, but uh, okay, um, <laughs> Boomfall's wondering how many of the wraiths knew the story already. Like, are 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 the wraiths getting drawn in? <laughs> like. We can't wait to hear more. Um, yeah, good question. I mean, probably they knew it. I mean, they've been around a long time, but they probably never heard it told like this before. Uh, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that uh, the story of Baron and Luthien probably not told in exactly the same way uh, by Sauron and his lieutenants. Um, yeah, Tarlonial, they probably had heard some Sauron twisted version, or maybe I can't decide whether Sauron would make up a different version of the story or whether he would um or whether he would um just ban it you know just like not allow it, uh, it to be said uh, i could see either way um but anyway um yeah mike goes with ban i i can definitely see again i i could i could see it I could, I, I could definitely see it either way that he, because he, especially it was, it was not just a story of his debate. I mean, it was embarrassing, right? I mean, he got, he got, someone got embarrassed during the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, as Erocheb says, uh, he, he doesn't let them say Sauron. So I imagine Huon is right out. Uh, yeah, very likely, very likely. Um, anyway, Okay. Well, he can always, like, expurgate that bit, right? Um, but probably the story of Melkor getting thrown on his face isn't going to do him any favors. Uh, uh, you know, it's not going to be any big bonus to Mordor morale either. Anyhow, okay, um, let's keep going. Back to that last, um, back to that last uh, uh, paragraph there. 
Even as they did so, even as they looked up, they saw on the top of the hill. I love that even as they did so, um, showing you how instantaneously the fear falls upon them, right? Um, and again, the more I, oops, I'm, I'm hearing the suspicious music of my having AFK'd out. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, the more I, I read and think about this passage, the more I like the fact that it, uh, is being coy with us in that last sentence. Because again, as I suggested before, it doesn't really truly matter uh, whether it's a black rider or not, right? What we see is their fear taking effect. But let's keep going. Sam and Mary got up and walked away from the fire. First of all, can we just stop there for a second? Um, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? Right? Sam and Mary got up and walked away from the fire. This shows their frame of mind. This shows how thoroughly Aragorn has succeeded in his job, how much he's winning this battle so far. Here they are in the dark underweather top, and the ringwraiths have all are already closing in all around, right? And so here's Sam and Mary like, oh, I'm just gonna wander away from the fire off into the darkness, right? You know, like you do, just stretching my legs, right? Those are not terrified hobbits, obviously, right? Frodo and Pippin remained seated in silence. Strider was watching the moonlight on the hill intently. All seemed quiet and still, but Frodo felt a cold dread creeping over his heart now that Strider was no longer speaking. He huddled closer to the fire. At that moment, Sam came running back from the edge of the dell. I don't know what it is, he said, but I suddenly felt afraid. I durstn't go outside this dell for any money. I felt that something was creeping up the slope. Did you see anything? asked Frodo, springing to his feet. No, sir. I saw nothing, but I didn't stop to look. I saw something, said Mary, or I thought I did. Away westward, where the moonlight was falling on the flats beyond the shadows of the hilltops, I thought there were two or three black shapes. They seemed to be moving this way. Keep close to the fire with your faces outward, cried Strider. Get some of the longer sticks ready in your hands. Okay. Now, one of the things that I think is a really important tell here, Strider was watching the moonlight on the hill intently. We have a pretty clear track record of when Strider is looking at some, when Strider is really paying attention, he doesn't, he, he plays things pretty close to the, to the, to the vest, right? Um, you know, we saw him, for instance, with the lights above Weathertop, right? Not saying a fraction, more than a, a small fraction of what he was thinking, right? Um, I think this is one of those times when the narrator is telegraphing to us what Strider is probably thinking, but he's not saying anything, right? If Strider is watching the moonlight on the hill intently, I'm thinking it's because there's something to see there, right? He's not just like, I really like watching moonlight on a hillside, don't you, right? No, there's something there, right? So um, I'm now feeling fairly convinced that those were definitely not rocks, right? Uh, as I said, it doesn't really matter whether they are ring rates or not, but they're totally ring rates, right? Um, Strider is, um, uh, Strider is, 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 is watching them. Um, exactly for Thoughtless. I do think he's considering that small black shape quite carefully. Um, and, uh, so, okay. Why does he tell them to grab sticks. He says that fire is their friend in the wilderness. 
and that the creatures of Sauron do not love it. Okay. Sauron can put fire to his evil purposes, but his servants do not love it. Okay. Does this mean they are flammable? Does this mean that they uh, have damage vulnerability to fire-type damage? Right? Is that um, is that what we're imagining here? Uh, no. No, I don't think that's what we're imagining here. Um, I really don't... Um, uh, I really don't think that he is telling them to pick up sticks out of the fire because the sticks out of the fire are very likely uh, to damage the fire, ter- uh, damage the ringwraiths horribly, right? Are the ringwraiths afraid of fire? It's possible. Um, do they avoid light? Yes. Um, you know, are they, they're stronger in darkness? Yeah. So just like having light between you and them is, is something, right? Is going to be enough. And we know there, there is something about fire. We will see something of that, uh, later on. Uh, it's true. Lady Shmevyawak, they, they don't have Holocaust cooks. So there's that. Um, but, uh, Yes, exactly, as J.J. corrects me. See, it's not the fire damage, it's the radiant damage. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up, J.J. Thank you for that. Um, no, but the the here's one of the points that I would make. One of the points that I would make here, it's not about weapons. Because guess what? Guess how many people are going to strike physical blows. Guess how much combat is going to happen, right? We're not rolling for initiative here, folks, right? Nobody, uh, almost nobody on their action is going to take combat-related action uh, in this entire sequence, right? Uh, notice that the hobbits also have swords. They're not using those, right? Um, uh, I, you know, I mean, it's, 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 he says, keep close to the fire with your faces outward. Get some of the longer sticks ready in your hands. I think the important thing here, it's about them. This is a spiritual battle. It's not a physical battle. It's not even a radiant elemental battle. This is a spiritual battle. Exactly, Karita. It's to make the hobbits feel braver. If they are facing the enemy, right? If they are prepared to defy the enemy, they've been told that the enemy fears fire, right? Or at least he implied that uh, that the enemy, you know, he said they don't love it, which is, you know, but anyway, like, so, okay, so that's a good, so, so in other words, he said to them, hey, you're not helpless, right? You're small, you're puny, they're like huge, scary, shadowy, undead things, but you're not, you're not, you're not helpless, right? They don't like fire. So you've got fire, you're good. So put your back to the fire, your side, you know, you're standing there side to side, shoulder to shoulder with your companions, uh, you know, a flaming brand before you, the fire behind you. This is the best spiritual position that they can be in, right? This is the most hopeful, the most positive place where they can be. And I think that that's so much more important than the flames, right? Than the actual pointed stick involved. Um, So, yeah, JJ, exactly. The flaming brands are a light shining against the darkness. That's, that's, that's exactly it. 
That's exactly it. Um, uh, Karina, exactly. Who doesn't feel braver when they're holding a flaming stick? Try it sometime. It totally boosts your courage. I absolutely agree. Um, uh, so yeah, that seems, this seems to me a much more important dynamic of this, um, of this passage. Now, the Hobbit exchange in the middle of this passage, what do you make of this? First of all, there's Frodo's question. Did you see anything? Right now, Sam's report shows us a that he's um, very sensible, as we've seen so many times before. Right, that that uh, his response to Frodo's question: "Did you see anything?" No, sir, I saw nothing, but I didn't stop to look. Right, uh, that's classic Sam, right there. Right, you know, he wasn't thinking of his dignity. He wasn't thinking about what he would re- report back when he came. He was just like, I, "Okay, you know, I'm getting, I'm not gonna stay out here for any money." Right, I don't care. Um, Yeah, Mike, I agree. Frodo seems to be still looking for physical dangers. Or what? Is he doubting? Is this Frodo trying to... Strider has no doubts about what's going on, right? Strider knows what's happening. Strider is not looking at the hillside and saying, is that a rock? Maybe it's just a rock. It's it's probably just a rock, right? Tell me that's just a rock, right? This is not what Strider is thinking. He's looking at the hillside and being like... One black rider there, one black rider there, right? He knows what's going on. He is not playing that kind of game uh, with himself. He's not, he doesn't seem to be, whereas I think Frodo and what was being reflected by the narrator in that earlier sentence, the perhaps sentence, right? And what we're hearing from Frodo here, did you see anything, right? Is this Frodo like in his almost panicked hope that, they're not actually being attacked by black riders right now. Is he looking for a loophole? Right? Like, okay, so that sounds really suspicious, Sam. Like you you suddenly were overcome by this like really powerful um this really powerful uh 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 you know a sense of fear outside the Dell. But like it totally could still not be the black riders, right? I mean if you didn't see it, like then it that doesn't prove it, right? Um and I think that, that that's not hope speaking, right? That's panic speaking. Um, That's the fear talking. That's him rationalizing, attempting to rationalize. That's uncomfortable. Isn't that uncomfortable? Right? Because that kind of rationalization correlates with the influence of the ring. Right now, I'm not saying this is the ring speaking here, but but I am saying that we know Frodo's on shaking ground when he's doing that kind of rationalization. Um, and Matt, I agree. I do think we're learning a lot about Mary's adventurous spirit. Remember, this is, uh, this is Mary Brandybuck, Mr. Uh, you know, it was no fair going off and having adventures without me. Right. And he's kind of proving that, uh, he meant what he said, right. We saw him follow the, you know, trail the black riders in streets in Brie, uh, much to Strider's amazement. Um, even though, you know, he does say that he seemed to be drawn somehow, but still, Strider is, seems to be impressed. Uh, and now, Mary, he did stop and look, right? Sam might have turned and booked it, but um, uh, but Mary stayed and, and, and looked. And he thinks he saw something. He's not really sure. But again, how do you see a shadow in the darkness exactly? Not really uh, surprising that he can't be completely guarantee what he saw or didn't see. But notice what he sees is not the Black Riders approaching the, like right on the edge of the dell. He sees them closing in across the across the field, right across the the flats, uh, under the uh, you know on the other side there. 
Um, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, so Frodo, you can see the mindset that Frodo is in, right? I think he's trying to be strong. I think he wants to remain positive, but he's obviously fearing and, and near the edge of panic, hoping to be told that things are better than he thinks. Strider has nothing to do with that, right? Strider's not going to rationalize at all. Strider's response is, keep close to the fire with your faces outward, right? That that They are coming, right? We are, they are here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought there was something else I wanted to say about the earlier passage, but I think, oh, I want, yeah, I wanted to respond um, to whose question was it? Somebody asked a very excellent question a little while back. Uh, Tiber, why doesn't Strider keep telling stories? I don't know. Um, that would be my question for Strider as well. Strider, what the heck? Why did you keep telling stories? It was working. You were winning, right? Uh, God, there's plenty of them, right? You know, can I pull out something? It, surely, surely. I mean, Baron and Luthien was an awesome choice. I mean, that's like, a, you know, yeah, you really, you really nailed it with that one. But, you know, like, the second best story. <laughs> Come on, give, give it a shot, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, he doesn't do it, and I don't. I don't know that I have an explanation for that. I, I just don't. Um, I don't know why he would do that. Um, I, I I can't see anything in the text that would seem to suggest an answer to it. <laughs> tell stories only usable once per day. JJ, yeah, exactly. He has to take a long rest before he can, t- he can tell another story of that potency again, right? Yeah, you can't just do that all the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's all the role-playing jokes tonight. Uh, yeah, can you tell I've been playing D&D with my kids? Anyway, um... It is possible. Okay, so um, Ambrosius Aurelianus says the storytelling can only uh, can you know might only have been a temporary defense, uh, a slowing of the enemy's advance and a weakening of their influence. I don't see anything to suggest that simply telling hopeful stories is enough to prevent the ringwraiths from attacking and stabbing people with morgul blades. Right? Would it? You know? I mean, has it reached the limit of its efficacy anyway? Tiber, I would still say, what have you got to lose? Give it a shot, right? <laughs> so, like, the whole, like, I'm not even going to bother with story number, with, like, my second best story, I still, I have a hard time getting behind that. I really do. But, yeah, I mean, one notices, for instance, that when Gandalf was surrounded by the ringwraiths on top of Weathertop, he went for explosions, rather than stories, right? Uh, you know, he, he didn't just, like, try to filibuster the, the ring rates off of Weathertop. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's enough to suggest by itself that, like, there comes a point where you can, you know, like, in the in the preamble, um, 
Because remember, you can think about if we, going back to the Crick Hollow model that we've gotten for ring wraith attacks. It's the only model we have of this kind of thing. We did see two phases, right? Phase one was the siege of fear, and then st- you know standing there for hours surrounding the house, and then stage two was invasion, right? And perhaps, perhaps the conclusion that we're supposed to come to is that stories like unto the Baron and Luthien story are fine for, uh, uh, for phase one, right? The siege of fear part, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna stop them barging in when, when they deem that it's time, you know, when the hour strikes, uh, for, uh, uh, for the invasion. I don't know. But like I say, we have really no data about this. But Tiber, I think it is a really excellent question uh, because it's um, it's the first bit works so well that it is almost fuddling that he doesn't try it a second time. Um, now, Karita, that is an excellent point. Gandalf didn't have hobbits to tell stories to, so maybe that's a difference. So maybe if you really need to defend yourself in the wild, Karita, this can be part of the worst-case scenario book, right? Okay, so worst-case scenario, ringwraith attack. Bring an audience with you, right? Ideally an impressionable, <laughs> inexperienced audience, right, that you can tell stories who will just, like, you know, they eat up the story of Baron and Luthien on toast, right? Because that reaction is a big part of it, right? Whereas Gandalf made the classic blunder of going off on his own, so he had to fall back on mere explosions because he didn't have anybody to tell the story to. I'm loving this theory, Carita. I, I say we run with that. Um, Pontian, I guess he could have told stories to his horse, but it's not the same, right? Shadowfax probably knew the stories anyway, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> JJ was asking if you don't have a hobbit with you, can you just bring a bolster with a brown mat and try to convince the ring rates that you're telling stories to a hobbit? I love that. Yeah, tuck it into the bedroll, right? The bolster. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm thinking in the spiritual conflict here, I don't think that the. Uh, uh, the 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 will of the the responsive will of the bolster is gonna do the trick probably, um yeah yeah probably so, um anyway okay yeah um he <laughs> didn't name him Odo yeah absolutely if you have a fake Hobbit that you're bringing along with you if you've got a bolster and a mat you you, you should name him Odo absolutely, um yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, that's very good. That's very good. Yeah, <laughs> Boomful says the material component <laughs> of of Strider's, uh, you know, hope uh, spell is a live hobbit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Fortunately, Boomful, the material component is not consumed uh, in the casting of, of that spell there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Um, now Karita wants receptive bolster to be to be a dnt magical item <laughs> yeah yeah sure yeah absolutely absolutely i like that um okay all right <laughs> excellent yeah yeah it could be a magic the gathering card james really yeah yeah Re- receptive bolster talk about your inside joke cards, right? Boy, think of how you'd have to explain, how much explaining you'd have to do if you pulled that one out of your deck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. All right. Um, let's keep going. 
Let's do a third slide tonight. Why not? For a breathless time, they sat there, silent and alert, with their backs turned to the wood fire, each gazing into the shadows that encircled them. Nothing happened. It's my little synopsis for the whole attack. Nothing happened. There was no sound or movement in the night. Frodo stirred, feeling that he must break the silence. He longed to shout out aloud. Hush, whispered Strider. What's that? gasped Pippin at the same moment. Over the lip of the little dell, on the side away from the hill, they felt, rather than saw, a shadow rise, one shadow or more than one. They strained their eyes, and the shadows seemed to grow. Soon there could be no doubt. Three or four tall black figures were standing there on the slope, looking down on them. So black were they that they seemed like black holes in the deep shade behind them. Frodo thought that he heard a faint hiss as of venomous breath and felt a thin, piercing chill. Then the shapes slowly advanced. Okay. Um, now, several things here. Notice Frodo's response. Now, great question. Do I think that... Um, uh, do I do, do I think that the ring wants Frodo to reveal himself? Frodo's impulse to uh, shout out loud and stuff, is this ring-induced? No, I don't think so. Or rather, I think we have no reason to think that. I think we have no evidence for that. Um, you know, every thought or temptation that Frodo has isn't from the ring, <clears throat> right? And this doesn't have any of the markers that we have come to associate with ring temptations. Um, it's... But what it does seem to do uh, is when we, this is that cloud of fear, right? This is that, um, uh, they're coming. He sees them. Strider sees them approaching, right? We know they're there. So what do they do? Nothing. They stand out of sight and wait and wait, and the pressure builds and builds and builds. This is what they were trying to do to Fatty Bolger, Right. Um, but failed because Fatty Bolger booked it. Right. He was too smart for that. Um, but um, uh, nothing happened. No sound or movement. And yet the attack is ongoing. Right. It's not about to begin. The attack is ongoing. And Frodo is becoming a casualty of this attack now. Right. Um, that feeling that he must break the silence, that desire to shout out loud. Now, it would depend on what he shouted as to whether or not that was a success or a failure. Um, we have seen... Oh, who was it who was talking about... Um, uh, was talking about this... Um, yeah, Tillian was saying that Frodo's instinct in the Old Forest was to run around and scream too. Yes, but remember, Tillian, in the Old Forest, the song that he ultimately sang when he couldn't stand it anymore, well, it was Pippin who was just like, just let us through, will you? Right? Pippin felt that pressure and cried out aloud as well, breaking the silence. Frodo, when he felt that, get, sang his song, right? And his song, as we saw, was a song of defiance. It was, um, it was a song about the defeat of the forest, right? All that stuff about ending and failing that they didn't like. Um, so when he did break the silence, he was at least doing so defiantly, not in despair. Right. Um, whereas, again, Pippin's impulse, uh, when he um, breaks the silence in the old forest, he was just crying out like, let us pass, will you? Right. That's close to despair. Right. Um, begging to be let through. If you're talking that way, 
the trees are winning, right? The fear is, is, is overtaking you. What would he have shouted? I wonder, right? Would he have shouted something like Pippin did in the old forest or would he have done something like maybe a song like he sang in the old forest might've been good here. Right. Um, you know, how about another refrain of that? Do you remember any of that Baron and Luthien song? Uh, I've what the leaves were long, the grass was green. Come on, let's do it. Um, uh, sing about the hemlock umbles uh, or something. That would be. Um, uh, um, that would be. Not bad, I think. Um, but. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right, Mike. We will see him cry something out later on. Right, uh, which is uh, uh, definitely a good move on his part. I'm not sure that that's what he was thinking of crying out here. But, um, uh, oh, and Tillian, you were thinking about when they met Tom Bombadil and he was yelling, help. Yeah, there he is running around and yelling. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. Um, okay, anyway. Interesting that Strider whispers hush. Now, it's clear that he says hush at the same time Pippin gasps, what's that, right? So both of them clearly hear something that Frodo doesn't hear, right? They are hearing the boots of the riders approaching the edge of the dell. Um, But it seems to me awful coincidental, right? I'm going to go with... So my reading is that Frodo was about to shout something embarrassing, right? This was going to be much more of the... Oh, let us through, will you? Line of thinking than it is the O. Elbereth Gilthonia line of thinking, right? I I think. Um, And the reason I think that is the juxtaposition of Frodo's desire to shout with Strider saying, hush, right? Now, again, he's not saying hush. You know, his hush, I don't think, literally translates to, you mustn't shout out in that spirit, right? I don't think it's what he's saying. But the coincidence is a little bit much for me to let go of. So I, I, I think that it's sort of usefully important, right, that um, that Strider happens to say hush at that particular moment when Frodo is thinking of crying out. And it does rather suggest to me that had he cried out there, it would have not been a good thing to have cried out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Um, yeah, no, JJ, exactly. Hush. He isn't saying hush because he thinks the riders will miss them if they're quiet. This is not about stealth, right? That's why he lit the fire in the first place. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, And I agree. Many of you were talking about how terrifying that last paragraph is, and I agree. There are so many things about this that are really creepy, right? Um, A shadow rise, one shadow, or more than one. Again, notice the narrator bringing us into that fearful perspective of what it was like to be a hobbit in this moment. You can't even tell how many of them there are. You have a vague sense that there's more than one. Notice something? Tactically speaking, how do they approach? Altogether, They're coming from lots of different directions. That's very clear. At least one is up on the hill. At least two or three are approaching across the flats, right? We, they have the place surrounded. Um, if they were coming in for combat, right, they would come in from all different angles because they have this dell totally surrounded, right? They don't. They form up and they come in 
together, three or four tall black figures standing there on the slope looking down on them, right? Because the ring wraiths are stronger together, we know. But also, it's not that kind of a fight, right? And I, somebody, I forget who it was, somebody was talking about um, like the element of surprise and how this whole fear tactic that they do uh, 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 robs them of the element of surprise. The element of surprise is for people who want to stick swords into folks, right? If your goal is to shoot folks full of arrows or stick them with pointed metal objects, then yes, it is to your advantage uh, to catch them by surprise, right? You know, you could, because the, if they're not going to defend themselves, they're easier to poke with things, right? But that's not the goal, right? That's not the point. Um, this, it, uh, it, I, it, them being aware is far more valuable, right? They're not trying to surprise anybody uh, because they're not trying to fight them. Or rather, again, not physically. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Erechem, ring wraiths never approach their foes single file in order to hide their numbers, <laughs> right? <laughs> never. Uh, it's the they're the opposite of of uh, the sand people. Um, yeah. So um, Arden Crayon asks, uh, I don't think the poison knife was the original plan. Oh yeah, no, the poison knife is the original plan, but it's not combat, right? It's you don't have to score a critical hit with the Morgul blade. Um, if this goes down appropriately... So, here's how I think this is supposed to go down, right? Um, here's how the Witch King drew this up. First, you surround the Dell until they are completely stiff with fear, right? Then you come in in formation, right, all together, uh, so that you are, you, you know, the, the, the ring wraiths all are, you know, sort of combining their power together and you approach them and they can, there's nothing they can do, right? You get the ring wraith, the ring wraith, you get the ring bearer, right? To single out himself. Then you stab him, stab him like a sacrifice, not like a fencer, right? This is not like, you know, you stole my father's ring and prepare to die, right? This is not how the Witch King is approaching this. Um, he wants to stab a victim, right? Uh, he is going to make sacrifice of Frodo so that Frodo can join them, like, instantly. So that Frodo, so that Frodo Wraith uh, can bear the ring with them back to Mordor. Um, that's, I, I'm pretty sure. That's how the, the the Witch King drew this up, right? So the stabbing was always part of the uh, plan. Combat, never part of the plan. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Sam. Yeah, they they want to be seen. The ring rates want to be seen so they can be feared. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, anyway. Um, and yeah, I agree, Matt. I, I also love the foreshadowing of the piercing chill in Frodo's heart, right? That is not coincidental, right? The f Notice how, and, and, and I don't think it's, I'm not just saying I don't think it's coincidental on Tolkien's part, right? I think it's very much not coincidental on, it's, it's, I think it's very active foreshadowing on Tolkien's part. I mean, on the Witch King's part, right? The particular fear that he is trying to uh, inspire is like, a warm-up act, right, for the stabbing he's going to do, right? I, I am going to, like, f first, I am going to pierce your heart with terror, 
right? So that you, in hopelessness, horror, and despair, yield yourself to me, right? Because you know there is nothing you can do to resist, and it's completely hopeless, right? And when you do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stab the Morgul blade straight into your heart, right? And I am going to make physical and as well as spiritual, right? That piercing chill of fear in your heart. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt says it's the same, uh, MO as the Barrow, uh, the, the Barrow Whites. Yeah, it's very similar. If, I mean, I think actually a really close comparison of the attack of the Barrow White and the attack of the Ring Wraiths here would be very fruitful. Um, there's a lot of things, of course, that we could notice. Hey, that sounds like a great uh, myth moot or regional moot paper. You, somebody should totally write that paper and then present it. Uh, do a close comparison. That sounds great. Um, it is a moot point. That's a great moot point, uh, JJ. Totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, exactly. Art and Crayon, they want the hobbits to respond like terrified animals. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, to, to freeze. Like if the hobbits go Tharn, they have won. The ring rates have won. That's, that's, that's what they want to do. Okay. Um, sorry. Uh, Watership down reference. You don't get that, but I've been making all the Monty Python and D and D references tonight. Had to throw in a little, uh, a little, uh, uh, Watership down there as well. Um, so black were they that they seemed like black holes in the deep shade behind them. The background is black, right? Pitch black. But they are so dark uh, that they look like holes in the blackness behind them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, darker than the darkness. Exactly, Forthalus. Exactly. They're literally darker than the darkness, just like the Barrow White. That's, of course, as you guys will remember, what Tom Bombadil called the Barrow White, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so, what is his name? Austin Jeffords um, on Twitter here. Um, yeah, so how close are the Whites and the Nazgul? First of all, keep... I say keep in mind as if we read that. In in the Mythgard Academy class that we did on the Return of the Shadow, one of the things that we learned there is from the early drafts, they were the same. Like, they were identified. He thought the Barrowites came first. He, he invented the Barrowites way back when he wrote the poem of uh, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, so his idea was that the Ringwraiths originally were Barrowites. They were Barrowites on horses riding around. Um, and uh, then he decided that they're not exactly the same. But again, if we were to do that comparison, if somebody were to make uh, what JJ characterized as a moot point there, um, uh, 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 doing a, a close comparison of the Barrow White and the Ringwraith here, the Barrow White's attack in the Barrow specifically, and the Ringwraith's attack here on Weathertop, um, I think that we would see there's a lot of connection between them. They're, they, they work very similarly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Matt points out that there's a third level of foreshadowing, right? There's um, uh, there's Tolkien, the author. There's uh, the Witch King. 
Uh, and there's Frodo, the narrator, who's telling the story and knows how this stuff turns out. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Arden Cran, I agree. When you, you you can see very clear trends in how the and the the kinds of effects that the bad guys have, right? With the Balrog, that as as you mentioned, it's not exactly the same, but we will certainly see some similarities when we get there, right? Not too long from now, right? Uh, we're we're practically there already. Um, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, good. Oh, Ingwe is uh, looking ahead to the mirror of Goadriel and the description when the when the eye shows up, it's going to describe it. It's going to use uh, some of the same language. As dark as if a hole had opened in the opened in the world of sight, uh, is what Frodo describes uh, seeing in the mirror uh, before the eye appears. Um, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, cool. Um, okay, uh, so, oops, no, hang on. Yeah, all right, that's where we were. Sorry. Um, and their breath, yes. Uh, so the fact that they are shadow, you can't even tell how many of them there are. I mean, they're right there. They're like a couple of yards away, right? Uh, and yet you can't you can't tell how many of them there are. Right. Because uh, they're, they're just they're darker than the darkness. And yet they have boots that make sounds. And yet you can hear their breathing. Right. Um, and not only hear it as a venomous breath and felt a thin, piercing chill. Right. Um, which comes from their breath. Right. That's the effect that their breath has. That's the mechanism by which the Witch King is doing his foreshadowing, right, of what he's going to do to Frodo's heart. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Fourth Dauntless, yes, I do think that that indicates or sort of foreshadows the action of the Black Breath. Um, you know, we're not going to get that clearly, you know, explained or described for a while here, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I do think that that's that that's uh, what we're seeing there. Okay, sorry, this is my... I'm convincing myself we have time for one more slide face. We totally do. But do we have time for this slide? Yeah, we do. Terror overcame Pippin and Mary, and they threw themselves flat on the ground. That's what they did. So when their initiative comes up, throw themselves flat on the ground was their combat action that round. Sam shrank to Frodo's side. That's his action. Frodo, whose initiative was lower than everybody else's. Sorry, I'll stop making jokes. Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if he was bitter cold, but his terror was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. The desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow, nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to yield. Not with the hope of escape, or of doing anything, either good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. He could not speak. He felt Sam looking at him, as if he knew that his master was in some great trouble, but he could not turn towards him. He shut his eyes and struggled for a while, but resistance became unbearable, and at last he slowly drew out the chain and slipped the ring on the forefinger of his left hand. 
Okay. Now. Um, so. It is clear. Pippin and Mary <clears throat> are overcome with the fear. And like, no blame to them. You know, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be trying to diss on Mary and Pippin for what they're doing here. I'm not going to make fun of them, <clears throat> nor of Sam. Notice that Sam's faithfulness and his desire to stand by his master. Remember, this is, you know, Sam, uh, those black riders will have to ride over me, Gamgee, right? Um, and yet when it comes to it and the, he's confronted by the black riders here in the Dell, all he can do is shrink to Frodo's side. He's still standing. He doesn't throw himself down, right? Um, but all he can do is sort of cower next to Frodo here. Um, the big question is what we do with this as Austin Jeffords is asking here, is this the ring? Is this the ring or is this the wraith? What is happening here? Um, uh, on the one hand, so let's, let's look at things. Um, we get all kinds of ring markers here, right? It's clear that the ring is involved in some way, right? Um, notice that even Frodo connects it with other times when he has been tempted, right? He did not forget the barrow nor the message of Gandalf. Those should remind us of two of the other three times? Four? How many times has he experienced... Uh, serious ring temptation four right twice on the road the second time with gildor um so the first time it passes relatively quickly second time he's gonna give in ex except gildor and, and company show up in time third time uh in the house of tom bombadil fourth time in the barrow oh in the pony as well yeah true that that would that would make five yeah um anyway okay Okay. The point is, those are two major ones, right? And in particular, those are the two times that he gave in to it. No, that's not true. I was thinking the House of Tom Bombadil. The Barrow and the Message of Gandalf. Both so... So he... he the, He's remembering the barrow, the time he was tempted to put on the ring and resisted the temptation in the barrow and instead sang to Tom Bombadil. The other time, the message of Gandalf. Remember, that's what he was telling himself when he was tempted to put on the ring in the Shire, the one that Gildor rescued him from. Right. When he um, uh, when he like, remember, like the advice of Gandalf seemed absurd. Remember that line, um, that rationale. Right, that rationalization that we saw, and that was one of the clearest times when we saw that, when it was, you know, where where that really established itself. That was the moment when that really established itself as one of the most obvious markers of a ring temptation. Right? Um, yeah. Ah, true. Tom Frodo was tempted to put on the ring when uh, uh, when Lobelia and Otho showed up the day after Bilbo left. Yeah, I wasn't counting that one. Um, uh, yeah, that one seemed to be comparatively mild uh, compared to some of the other ones. Um, but, uh, okay, okay. So, agreed, he's remembering the other ring temptation. So Frodo himself is associating this moment with the other times when he was experiencing super temptation from the ring to put it on, right? So we certainly can't disregard that. So I think we have to say 
the ring is involved here somehow. But, as several of you are also pointing out, there are some significant differences between this and the other times that we've seen the ring temptation, right? Notice how that our attention is drawn to that too. Not with the hope of escape, or of doing anything, either good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. That's not how the ring has ever operated, right? Um, he was tempted before. He would, That rationalization uh, signature... Every single time the ring has tempted him, it's provided him with a long string of reasons why it's either totally fine to do it or why it's actively desirable, right? Remember in the Barrow, he had this like vision, right? Not vision, but he had this like mental picture, right? Of himself running free across the weeping for Merry and Pippin, right? I, you know, and I, I love that little touch of the ring kind of throwing a bone to his compassion. Like you will mourn for them later. Right. And they they would appreciate that. Right. And they would understand. Even Gandalf would say there was nothing else you could have done. <clears throat> so when the ring is tempting him, that's how it works. That t- seems to be anyway how it works. So. But that's not what we see. And, and again, the narrator draws our attention to the fact that it is not working that way. Right. Not with the hope of escape or of doing anything either good or bad. He simply felt he had to put the ring on. Exactly, Austin. It's always been about self-preservation before. That's been the number one rationale, right? That's been the number one rationalization. Um, yeah, Boomful, exactly. He's not even really giving into a temptation of any, or other than just to put the ring on. Thinking about the same thing another way. In every single case... The putting on of the ring was always a means to an end, right? Usually self-preservation. Escape. It's going to catch me. It's sniffing its way straight towards me. I'm going to put it on and then I'll be safe, right? I'm going to put it on and I'm going to escape from the ring wraith. I'm going to put on my ring and therefore prove that my it's really the ring because it's totally, I totally need to test it now that Tom Bombadil chucked it up in the air and made it, dis- pulled it out of my ear and whatever it is that he does, right? Um, so I, I, I need to test it. That's, I'm going to, so, and but of course there's no explanation for why he's leaving the door. But still, point is, it's always been, um, it's always been, the ring temptation has always been, use the ring as a means to an end. And it's that end that the ring seems to hold out in front of the ring bearer as the motivator, right? This is much simpler than that, right? This is much simpler than that. He is, he just feels this he simply felt he must take the ring and put it on his finger. He's feeling this compulsion, right? Which seems more like compulsion than temptation. Notice his own will is barely engaged here. Not in the same way, anyway, that it has been engaged by the ring in the past, right? Again, the ring, remember the ring, the ring holds out a desirable thing to you and says, essentially, all this can be yours if you just put me on and claim me, right? That's the M.O. of the ring, right? That sound familiar, Bible scholars, right? Uh, I mean, th- that, 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 that seems to be how it operates. And of course, I'm referring to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness uh, by Satan. But, um, but again, it's, it's a temptation to put on the ring in that sense, right? Um, in the sense of 
you will be tempted to use it as a means to an end which you find desirable, even if it's something as simple as self-preservation, right? That is not what's happening to Frodo here. Now, I don't think that that absolutely proves that the source of this temptation is not the ring. I just think it's a really important data point that we should look at, right? Um, uh, exactly. Uh, um, Lincoln says it's not temptation, it's battering down his will by brute force. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, that is definitely more like what it sounds like. It just uh, Resistance becomes unbearable, right? Notice it's not... Um, even that is interesting, right? It's... It's like the opposite. Temptation is a pulling, right? Um, you know, hey, you want this, right? Come over here. You want this, right? You know, you're being drawn and pulled. Um, this is a pressure that's being pushed onto him. It's a weight that he can't bear. He can't any longer hold up against the force of this desire to put on the ring. Right, it's 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 even acting differently in that way. Um, so, yeah, Tillian is wondering: um, is it um, would it be a sense of the ring uh, that this is the end, not merely a step towards it? So, basically, the the ring changing its tactic because it it doesn't need to be coy anymore. That this is just the ring saying, okay, I'm not playing games anymore, right? This is end game right here, right? All, all you got to do is, if I can just get you to put on the ring, so I'm going to do, I don't normally play this way, but this time I'm going to just overwhelm you. It's possible. It's possible. But I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that, well, I mean, as you know, I... I'm doubtful that the ring is really sentient in that way. Um, that the ring is planning and stuff in that in that mode. I think that uh, the ring does what it does because of what it is. Um, I think that that temptation to power... Um, remember, the ring is designed to be a means to an end, right? Um, when it's, it's, it's doing its job... When it's being a means to an end. Um, for the ring just to say, okay, I'm not, I'm just going to arm wrestle you into submission right now. The idea that the ring can change its... Ta I don't think the ring can change its tactics. Any more than fire can change its tactic. I mean, like a fire isn't going to be like, hmm, heat isn't working here. Let me try cold instead. No, it's a fire. It's hot. Right? That's what it does. And I kind of think that the ring is the same. Again, I'm not saying that it's totally impossible that the ring has some kind of perception or intelligence. But I do think um, that um, I do think that it is primarily acting out its nature. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. Several of you are asking, where is Aragorn at this time? Well, hang on. We don't know. We'll get there. Um, uh, <laughs> Zephyr is really bothered about this. Why, why, why is Aragorn dropping the ball? I hear you. 
I hear you. Um, let's uh, let's give him a minute. Okay. Well, of course we're gonna have to give him a week because I'm gonna I'm done after this slide. Um, the other option of so there are three options, I think, in our reading of this passage. Option number one is that this pressure, this unbearable psychic pressure that is being put on Frodo to put on the ring, is coming from the ring. This is just a ring thing. Um, the ring senses the presence of the ring wraiths and is like, okay, this is end game. I'm, I'm turning it up to, 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 to 10, right? Uh, that's one reading. The other, uh, reading would be that it's the witch king, right? This is the witch king asserting his will over Frodo. So that this overwhelming pressure, this desire to put on the ring is coming from the witch king, not from the ring itself. And that that's why it's different um than uh than the rest of the times that we have seen him tempted by the ring right um a third reading would be that it's some kind of combination between the two of them um and i think that i um i think that i incline towards towards that actually um so yeah um i think that the ring is involved but i think it's only indirectly i so i i I think we are seeing the will of the witch king here um that primarily what is going on this is this is single combat between the witch king and frodo except it's not single combat because the witch king has his posse with him and that strengthens him um, but I think that this is, this is, this is the assault. This is the attack right here. And as much as the, the, you know, the, the rest of it was the initial bombardment, right? This is now the invasion and it's a straight up spiritual attack. Again, notice what would an outside observer see, right? If we have a, if we have a, you know, a, 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 a drone with night vision recording this from above, what's it seeing so far, right? They're standing there back to back or with their backs to the fire rather, uh, these shadows come in. You can't really see anything, but something darker than the darkness comes in. Two hobbits fall down to the ground. One cowers down and the other stands there and does nothing. Right. And then vanishes eventually. So there's going to be a very small number of physical actions that happen here. And yet the combat, um, uh, the combat has been, is happening, right? It's happening right here now, obviously. So, you're the ring wraiths, right? Hobbits look alike, right? I mean, like, do the ring wraiths have a description of Frodo, right? You know, I, I mean, like, the Witch King surely isn't pulling a paper out of his pocket, a letter out of his pocket, and being like, perky lad with red cheeks and a bright eye, right? That's not, uh, that's not what he's, uh, uh, that's not what he's doing. Right. How is he identified? Because he doesn't care about the rest of them. Obviously, they don't touch any of the rest of them. The ring wraiths don't do. I mean, apart from scaring the bejesus out of them, they don't do anything to them. Right. Uh, That once Mary and Pippin cast themselves on their faces and Sam cowers back, they ignore them. Right. Um, One of the things that they're doing is identifying the ring bearer. So the strategy by the witch king seems to be like the psychic attack that he's putting out here 
is, you know, this sort of spiritual attack is um, put on the ring, put on the ring, put on the ring, right? I know you're here. And what's more, I know you. So I, I know that one of you four hobbits has the ring. And I know that the one who has the ring is going to be subject to its temptation. See, I don't think this is not as um, as Matt was just saying. The plan is to wraithify Frodo, but the ring has not been involved in the planning meetings, right? The ring doesn't know what's going to happen here, right? But the ring wraith doesn't, the ring wraiths do know what the ring is like, right? They do know. The Witch King knows the properties of the ring. So I think that it's fair to say that the Witch King has a pretty good idea that whichever of these hobbits is carrying the ring has experienced the temptation to put it on and claim it. Anybody who holds the ring of power is going to experience the temptation to claim it for themselves. So he says, I'm going to work on that, right? I'm going to work on uh, knowing, knowing this weakness you're going to have, knowing that you have been subject to this temptation before, I'm going to, I'm I'm gonna work on that opening, and it works. Um, and somebody, um, Matt, I think it was you, before, um, uh, or somebody who was it? Um, uh, I forget. But anyway, somebody before was commenting on the fact that I okay, know trying to remember who it was made me forget what it was that they said. Oh dear, boy, I'm not doing so well here. Um, uh... <laughs> boy, that boy really fizzled out in a hurry, didn't he? <laughs> um... <sighs> Never mind. Never mind. Oh well. Lost it completely. Getting late. Um... Uh... Yeah. Um, one of the things that I love about this passage is Sam. Okay, what don't I love about Sam? But he felt Sam looking at him as if he knew that his master was in some great trouble, but he could not turn towards him. Sam's love for Frodo, Sam's devotion to Frodo, is such that he like is tuned in to Frodo. Like, he knows. Nobody else can see what's going on. There's nothing happening, right? Nothing is still happening. He's just standing there. Everyone's just standing there. Now there's a bunch of creepy shadows standing there, but everyone's just standing around. Sam knows a battle is being fought right now. He knows that his master is in desperate trouble and there's nothing he could do, right? If the ringwraiths had come in swinging swords, Sam could stand up to them, probably, Right. I mean, he does have a burning stick after all. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, it's, it's, uh, um, he's helpless. There's nothing he can do to assist Frodo here. Um, and this is important for us to remember later on. Remember this passage when we get to Mordor, right? When we see Sam, both desiring to help Frodo, in fact helping him in some cases, and in other cases being, again, totally helpless to assist Frodo, right? Um, this is the first moment where we've seen that since 
This internal struggle, the question of Frodo's will and his choice, is what is going to make the ultimate, um, the ultimate difference. And Sam can't help with that. And that's one of the reasons why Frodo, in fact, deserves as much credit as he gets at the end of the book. Um, I know there have been times in my life uh, when I got upset at the end of The Return of the King, when I'm like, they're making all a big deal about Frodo doing this. It was Sam the whole time, right? Sam should be the one carrying the, the crown to, to Gandalf, right? Not 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 Frodo. Um, there are times when I, would have, when I would have made that point indignantly. Um, but the point is he couldn't right i mean not to of course obviously i'm not attempting to belittle anything that sam does or how essential sam was in in the success of the quest but at the end of the day the resistance of frodo's will there was nothing that sam could do and we see that here for the first time right what's going to be the most important battle is going to be the battle that's happening with frodo so yes Frodo would never have gotten across Mordor. Frodo would never have gotten up Mount Doom. Frodo would never, of course, have escaped from uh, uh, the Tower of Kirith Ungol and gotten the ring back. Sam enabled all of those things, all of the physical things, right? All the things that he could help with. The actual, like, schlepping Frodo to Mount Doom. Sam could help with that stuff, down to carrying him on his back, right? But there's nothing he could do about Frodo's will. And Frodo's choices. And if Frodo had not made the choice, the choices that he did for as long as he did, it wouldn't have mattered, right? Um, uh, Sam's valor would have been in vain, and he would never even have gotten an opportunity to do it. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, let's see. So, conclusions. I do believe that the Witch King is involved here. The number one reason that I think the Witch King is involved, to me, what I think proves it, that the Witch King uh, is very directly involved in this attack right here, is the attack, the very similar attack that happens later, and a couple of you were talking about this bef uh, before. Um, when um, when they're in Minas Morgul, right? And the Witch King is leading his army out of Minas Morgul and he stops and he, you know, that there's another, there's going to be another conflict of, there's going to be a rematch between Frodo uh, and the Witch King at that moment. And what happens? What happens? When the Witch King senses some other power in his valley and he turns his... His will, when I, Frodo's hand immediately starts going towards the ring, right? And he, he he's got to like physically stop his hand. He again is under this kind of compulsion to put the ring on, exactly like is described here. There it's described more outwardly, as if from Sam's point of view. Here it's described internally, as if from Frodo's point of view. And maybe, it, maybe that that is so, right? Um, but. Um, but yeah, um, uh, this kind of battering compulsion, Lincoln, that's a good description of it. This seems to be how the Witch King is operating. And it's unlike how the ring operates. But again, 
I think it's the ring that has made Frodo vulnerable to it. Oh, I remember the point that I forgot. Um, and I'm, I'm Matt, I think it was you. Uh, and that is that his terror is his terror is swallowed up. That it's interesting that Frodo stops being afraid. Right when this assault begins, his terror is swall- swallowed up in the sudden temptation uh, to put on the ring. That too, personally, that to me supports the Witch King instead of the ring argument. See, if it's the ring, the ring would use that as part of the rationalization. Like, gosh, aren't you afraid? You're, and you're right to be afraid, right? You're so afraid right now. The sensible thing to do would be to put me on and get the heck out of here because I'm all about helping people escape. That's what I do. Ask your uncle, right? I help people escape. So put on the ring. Um, uh, anyway, so... That's how the ring, but swallowing it up. Because remember, the fear is coming from the ring race in the first place. So this is seems to me the Witch King saying, all right, shifting gears, right? I have been oppressing him with fear. Now I'm shutting off the fear and I'm turning on overwhelming temptation to put on the ring, right? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start blasting on all frequencies this compulsion, right? To try to just compel him to do what I want him to do and reveal himself by putting on the ring. Um, so, uh, Ambrosius Aureliannus wants to know if the Witch Kings and Ring's influences were accidentally at odds with each other then. Um, yeah, I think that's quite possible for that to happen. Um, again, I remember Ambrosius, um, even in that scene in Minas Morgul, right? Um, what causes the um uh what causes the um the the ringwraith to stop right the the witch king to stop is that he f- senses some other power in his valley right like what is that an upstart a rival right uh some other power that is not mine um he doesn't he he doesn't stop and say oh a kindred spirit right no no he's like some other power i shall cow that thing Right. And he exerts his will uh, in this compulsion. Right. So that's not to say that he and the ring are actually rivals, but there's a there's there's at least an element there, I think. Um, Yeah. Now, Ardent Crayon, I I disagree with you. I don't think that compulsion is part of what we see the ring do at all. Um, Temptation is what we see the ring do. Rationalization, temptation, it tries to convince Frodo to do this thing. It gives him reasons to think that this is a good choice that he should make, right? But it's still about his choice. It is trying to influence his will to do a particular thing. Compulsion is about brute force. And brute force is exactly what's described here. He he closed his eyes and struggled for a while, but resistance became unbearable. And then he does it. Um... Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. So like I said, I don't think the ring is uninvolved, but I don't think this originates from the ring. I think the ring might be, you know, being exploited in a sense, like, or rather, the 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 influence that the ring has already gained over Frodo is being exploited by the Witch King. But I think that this comes from the Witch King and not from the ring itself. Whereas the like temptation to put the ring on in the prancing pony, I think came from the ring, right? Again, that's classic. Like this is a, an embarrassing, silly situation. Wouldn't you like to escape out of this silly situation? Um, 
that's how the ring talks, right? When you're the ring bearer, at least while you're still in Bree and not when you're on the plains of Gorgoroth, then it speaks to you rather differently. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt, exactly. Good. Matt says the key difference is that Frodo is putting on the ring, but he's not claiming it in this scene as he will in Mordor. Yeah, Matt, in a sense, his will is not involved in the same way that the ring wants to get his, the ring is trying to recruit his will, right? Um, so that he chooses to claim the ring for himself and to seek power for himself. Again, not, th- not to seek the ring. Ring is a means to an end. That's its job, right? Uh, to seek something else, anything else. The ring doesn't care what, right? It's going to seek, as long as he seeks something else using the ring, right? Claiming the ring for himself in order to accomplish whatever the heck end it is that the ring can convince him to try to accomplish, right? Um, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, conquest, gardening, whatever, Right, seafood. It doesn't matter. It use it'll use any of those things as uh, as as ends. Uh, uh, but it's all about it's all about making itself the means. Um, but Matt, you're right. When he's putting on the ring here, he's not claiming it. You could argue he's doing the opposite of claiming the ring for himself. Right? You know, to claim the ring for yourself means I have decided to seize this thing to achieve the end that I want to achieve. Right? And I'm going to use the ring. As, uh, as, as, you know, as, as my instrument in order to achieve that, as, as the means to achieve that end. Uh, so I claim the ring and take its power unto myself in order to enable me to do that thing that I want to do, right? Here, he's not, there's no thing. There's nothing he's trying to do. It's not being used as a means to an end at all. And he's not claiming it. He's not doing anything. He's submitting rather than setting himself up and, uh, uh, trying to gain some power or some end for himself, he's submitting, right? He's obeying in putting on the ring. It's, 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 it's almost exactly the opposite of the, of the way of like what the ring is trying to get Frodo to do. Um, yeah. Another, um, another reason I think that, that it, 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 it seems to me that, um, this is, primarily the Witch King um, exploiting the ring rather than the ring coming up with this temptation itself. Okay. Um, uh, Mary, I agree with you. I think that this kind of completely non-corporeal combat that's happening here between the Witch King and Frodo, which is going very poorly for Frodo at the time here, is um, much more terrifying than a fight with swords and torches, right? Um, so yeah, it is, it is much more interesting and much more effective. The one small thing that I would say in answer to the, what the heck is Aragorn doing with himself during this time? This doesn't take long, right? Even in the film, they drag that out. I think remember when the, uh, cause in, in the film, they, the, Mary and Pippin and Sam both perform better, right? Uh, Mary and Pippin form up in front of them and get shoved away. And then Sam comes and actually exchanges a few blows with the Witch King and gets thrown down. And then Frodo falls over, right? So Frodo performs least well of all four of them in the film version, right? It's not taken that long. Um, They're all standing back to back around the fire. So where is Aragorn? Right there, right? Now notice we don't know what's happening with him. We're told what happens with all four hobbits. We're not told what he's doing, Right. And yet, how much time has passed? When did they cross into the dell? 
like, who knows? Half an hour ago? 30 seconds ago? It could be anything, right? Um, this is an almost almost like timeless struggle that, that Frodo is in here. I think it's quite likely that Aragorn doesn't know what's happening. Sam knows, right? Because Sam has a major advantage over Aragorn here in knowing Frodo, right? Sam can see that his master is in some great trouble. I don't think Aragorn can see it. I don't think Aragorn fully anticipates what's going on here and what the real danger to Frodo is. That at least is my very quick answer, but we'll see. We'll get to Aragorn later on in his actions. Um, And by later on, I mean next week, because it is time to stop uh, our discussion. Next week, next week, we're going to finish. We're going to finish the chapter. That's right. After only, what, like 16 class sessions on chapter 11, we are absolutely going to finish uh, the Knife in the Dark chapter and uh, and then get ready for the final chapter of book one. That's going to happen next week. Um, thank you guys for joining me this week. So I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Great to have some comments from you guys on Twitter this week. That was awesome. Uh, and we'll... Um, uh, so I'll be back next week, normal time. Don't forget my announcements at the beginning this week, this weekend, Saturday, the 22nd, uh, is our, uh, our Hobbit day reading event, uh, from three to five o'clock. Just come here to Twitch, uh, and I'll be broadcasting it then, uh, here, uh, as well as on GoToWebinar. If you want to find out more information on our whole calendar, go to our donate page, Signum university.org slash donate and all of the stuff for the campaign and all our events and the registration links and everything. It's all there. Okay. So, uh, just go right there and you can find all the stuff. Thank you guys so much, uh, for joining me. I'm going to, it's field trip time. So don't go away. Those of you who are on Twitch and in game, and we're going to, we're going to continue our explorations. Um, I'm going to say goodbye to the Twitter folks. Thank you guys. And uh, and the moots register for the moots absolutely thank you Matt absolutely we have four moots open right now um, which is kind of amazing uh, we have we're, we, this is the first time we've ever had registration open for four events at the same time uh, middle moot in Kansas City which is soon October sixth it's going to be happening in just a few weeks and then LA moot on uh, October twenty seventh and then. Um, uh, Magnolia Moot down in Charlotte, North Carolina, which hopefully is not completely underwater. Everything all right down there, Matt? Everything okay down in Charlotte? I'm hoping. Uh, we just got dumped on. We we got the after effects of Florence today. Got like four inches of rain today up here. Um, we're okay. It wasn't a big deal. Just a lot of rain, but uh, nothing like, of course, what you guys had down south. Uh, but anyway, Magnolia Moot is on the 10th of November down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and registration is open for that. Um, and uh, uh, and then, yeah, so, Eric, what you do, go to signumuniversity.org, and then you just scroll down just a tiny little bit, and you'll see all our events there. There should be a, there should be a page for Magnolia Moot there. Um, yeah, so, oh, good, that's right, Matt. You guys are on high ground there down in Charlotte, so that's good. Um, but uh, anyway, so, um, oh, and then fourth text moot, right? Text moot happening in January at our, our, um, uh, our, 
uh, uh, registration is open for that too. January 19th, I believe down in Waco, Texas. So all four moots open for registration. Uh, hopefully wherever you are in the country, there's something vaguely near to you. And if there isn't yet, there will be soon. Uh, so again, Kansas city, Los Angeles, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Waco, Texas, all four coming up here in the next few months. Um, so, all right. Um, let us uh, let us head out on our field trip. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Uh, so we're gonna. So uh, Valori couldn't join me tonight, as she so often does. Uh, she is ill. I, I think she's okay, uh, uh, hurricane-wise. But having been braced for the hurricane and not sure if she was going to be flooded out or losing power or whatever, uh, she turns out to have gotten ill this week. So uh, um, that's uh, um, uh, sad. But we shall power on. Um, so um, let's uh, let's head out. So we're just going to go. We're going to continue in the Lone Lands. Um, ooh, hey, we can take over. We can go to the stables this time. Let's go to this. So I'm hoping that most of you will be able to take a horse to Oscar Ruth with me. Yeah, so if you want to switch over to Twitch channel, that'll be good. Because um, that'd be handy rather than having to ride out all the way across the Lone Lands again. All the way across Bree Lands and through the Lone Lands, I should say. Because we are getting towards the other side. So you'll remember we've I've been doing this sort of uh, historical survey of the ruins of the Lone Lands, trying to get a sense of the uh, a, a sense of the place. Because it's one of the one of those places that I find so fascinating in the game. And the Lone Lands is not like one of the most uh, you know universally loved areas uh, in Lotro. Um, but I find the Lone Lands, and have from the very beginning, I find it really fascinating from an adaptation standpoint. Um, because on the one hand, in the stories, these the descriptions that we have of these places are very... Okay, wait. I don't mean that the, the descriptions are boring in the sense that, like, the descriptions are boring to read. I mean, the descriptions of it is just that it is a boring place, right? There's not much there. Empty, desolate wilderness. Um, you know, there's so there's Bree, there's empty, desolate w- wilderness with a big hill in it, right? So, you're the game developers. You're making this area, the Lone Lands. What the heck do you do, right? What do you do with that? Tolkien gave them so little material to work with in his descriptions of the Lone Lands, if you think about it. So much less for the Lone Lands than for many of these other areas. Oh, wait, hang on. I was going to go to the Stable Master. Um, I what do you need? I can do... Wait, where's uh, Lone Lands? There we are. Can I do? Do I have? Yes, I do. Yeehaw. Um, so, um, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So, let's meet up at Oscar Ruth. <clears throat> um, so, uh, <clears throat> anyway. So, like I said, Tolkien gave them so little to work with in the Lone Lands, right? As far as directly. And yet, implicitly, there's a lot. Right? We know that although the characters see and encounter very little, um, in this in this place <clears throat> when they're passing through it, both in The Hobbit and in The Fellowship of the Ring. Yet we know that it was a an interesting place historically, right? When we, you know, when we learn about uh, and we, uh, um, you know, we, when we read in Appendix A, for instance, about the, um, the 
history of the Arnorian civil wars and all that stuff. We know this was a crucial, really, like the war between Arthodyne and Rudauer was like won and lost here in this place. Ultimately, of course, it came down to the battle at Fornost, of course, but still, um, this was a huge battleground that was really pivotal. And of course, it, um, uh, anyway, so we know it has a really rich history. We know, but we don't know anything else about it, right? So how do they approach doing this? How do they um, create interest in this place without just simply making up wild random things, right? Um, so that's why I find the Lonelands so fascinating. Oh, wait, on the subject of wild random things... <laughs> I was about to completely ignore the wild random things that are just across the street from Osgaruth, of course. Because um, there are some wild random things that they did invent uh, to fill this up. And I think most people agree, including most of the Locho developers that I've met, though they're very good. Um, they're very good at uh, maintaining their solidarity with previous developers who are no longer there. But, um, uh, so, you know, I can almost never get them to say inappropriate critical things of ideas of things that have come before. Uh, however, I think it's pretty clear that this group of people is not very popular with any of them. Now we've, we've done, we've looked at these guys before. Right. Um, these are the these are the Earthkin. We looked at them and talked about them in the North Downs. Right when we were up there, so we don't have to do this again. We've looked at settlements and their bizarre aurochs horns that I totally thought were parts of their body earlier on. Um, this whole this whole area, their standing stones and their storyline, which is kind of weak. Um, at least I find it kind of weak. Um, seems to me to be the the weakest element of adaptation in this entire section. Exactly the kind of thing that they could have just done a lot of, right? Like, hey, let's bring in totally other random stories. Gartha Garwin, to me, stands in stark contrast with the Earthkin here, right? With the Earthkin, it's like, let's invent something sort of vaguely Tolkienian, but not really very Tolkienian, and let's you know, kind of slap it in there and then, because we don't have anything else to put there, right? Uh, at least it, it feels that way. And I'm doing crit fic now, of course, uh, in explaining why it is that they did this uh, instead of just explaining what it is that I think is is bad about it. But um, but anyway, I think that you guys see what I mean. In Gartha Garwin, we see something very different, right? And that is taking some concepts and ideas that are in fact central to Tolkien's um, uh, to Tolkien's thought, to Tolkien's stories, and putting them together, admittedly in an interesting and different way, um, then we see there's no exact precedent for that, for precisely that kind of story in Tolkien's works. And yet, we do see something, uh, it is composed of elements that are very much present, unlike a lot of the stuff that we see with the Earthkin here. So, anyway, let's carry on ignoring the Earthkin, which fortunately is relatively easy to do. Uh, here in the Lone Lands. So, all right, so let's get back to, so you'll remember where we were. If we look at the map for a second, 
I was theorizing from Weathertop that all of the ruins south of the road were going to be from Arthodyne and all of the ones to the north of the road were going to be from Rudauer, that this was going to represent the frontier. Uh, and, of course, my theory was triumphantly vindicated as we've been exploring. And by the way, I totally didn't cheat on that. Uh, I mean, I'd been there before, but I didn't remember. I hadn't been to the Lonelands in, gosh, like two years or something, exploring these ruins. Um, I did this. Wigan did this. I did a completionist Loneland trek, but gosh, that was ages ago, at least two years ago uh, since I did that. So I didn't remember what was on the ruins on either side of the road. I was just speculating that it would make sense. Uh, and guessing about the kind of sense that it was going to end up making. Uh, and I ended up being right, which I'm going to carry on bragging about for a while because I was fairly proud of that. Um, but now, as I promised last week, in today's field trip, I want to push this a little bit further because with, with Oscar Ruth, we kind of come to the edge. The line that Arthodyne is branching out and forming, which is weird because Arthodyne is mostly up to the north and west of this, right? So them kind of encroaching around to the south seems to be, again, the, 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 the suggestion that the ruins are making here is that the people of Arthodyne were trying to establish a southern frontier to prevent Rudauer from expanding down into the south. So what happens out here with the Harloig in the south? So first I want to I look at the other ruins up here on this hill because we could see those from across the way. There is Oscar Ruth over there where we were last week. And I want to come up here and see what we see in these ruins. Are these Rudauran ruins? I assume they're going to be. Um, but I wanted to confirm that. And I wanted to see if there were any other interesting elements that we can see. Now we're coming up on wraiths, uh, or not wraiths, whites, I meant to say. Um, and of course, we can immediately see that it's definitely Rudauran ruin. There's the crown uh, right there. I want to be looking at sort of stylistic similarities and differences. Now, from here, it's fairly clear that it's similar to Ostgaruth, I would say. Um, now, of course, in the in-game storyline, uh, which Grifflet explored uh, when I was down here with him, um, this place has been, like, there's, you know, whites in the... What are the bosses called? I'm forgetting. Um... Yeah, this looks a lot like Oscar Ruth. Is this, uh, is this, ooh, actually it looks also like the one that's right under Weathertop. What are the names of the, the, the bad guys, the big bads here who have the sigils? The Gauntmen. Thank you, Deathman. I, I forgot about that. Uh, I couldn't remember that what they were called. The Gauntmen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have, yeah, we have the Gauntmen, um, and there, yeah, see, they've set up their white factories. Architecturally, this is more like, what was that thing called? I forget, the ruin right under Weathertop here. That first Rudauran ruin that we saw, or rather I should say the most westerly of the Rudauran ruins there. The one that looked like it was establishing the, you know, sort of forward base of operations very near to... Um, very near to Weathertop. Um, this looks more like it with these archways and these courtyards. This is much more windy. Um, with all these stairs and things reminding me a little bit more, actually, of that crazy Arthedanian one. Oh, here's one! 
Hey, it's one of the masters. Yeah, look at that. Gaunt dude. The gaunt dudes are really fascinating. Huh. Forgetting how I get over there. But this has a big Rudaran crown on it. Yes, it does. What is this, you think? Observation post? That's, yeah, it's very murky, of course, because it's evil here. Uh, but that would be Oscar Ruth right across the way there. Yes, it would. Um, okay, yeah, those are the towers of Oscar Ruth. I'm wanting to find my way up to that tower. Can we, do we, can we go around here? I think we can. Yeah, it's a little windy. Ah, yes. Oh, the purple-white factories. I remember these. There's another gaunt dude down there. Green-white factory. Do I... Oh, all right, there are stairs. Okay. All right. Yeah, notice, unlike Oskaruth, which was clearly designed for habitation, this is not designed... Doesn't seem to be any way designed for habitation. This seems to be, you know... Uh, well, not exactly concentric fortress, but sort of layer within layer. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm keen to get to this tower. There's another tower over there, which looks to be more like a, a watchtower. But this is really sort of the obvious heart of this citadel. Look at that. Oh, that is gorgeous. I mean, in a like green and creepy way. But um, oh, yeah. Oh, I love it. So. Look at how we have, so we have the, 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 the crowns of Rudaur, right? Very prominent. Oh, look, that's splendid. Look at this. So look at the, oh, the way that they have put this together is just beautiful. So we've got the two crowns down here, right, at the bottom of the tower. And then you've got the two crowns flanking the scepter of Anuminus with the little crown on top of the scepter, right? Nice touch. So you've got the crown... Uh, the crown of Rudaur and the scepter of Anuminus. I like that very much. Um, but then you've got the five kings here in the middle, and those are the same five kings. Aren't they the same five kings that we've seen in Arthedanian ones, towers, right? Aren't they? Hmm. Ah, uh, Nyrost. Thank you, Pontian. I forgot the name of it. Nyrost, the ruins near Weathertop. That's what I was thinking. Yes, this is reminding me of Nyrost. Um, and a little bit of Minas Ariel, um, but, you know, more evil. Um, but anyway, I love how they have accentuated the arches with these hanging skeletons, right? So the, these are obviously modern, right? These are, This is old and ruinous, but the but this tower is so well-preserved here. I'm calling it ruinous. It's a beautiful... This tower's in great shape. Um, and it's got the five kings, is that Isildur and his four sons? Very prominent, though, and right here at the heart of everything. And then, of course, look how hideously corrupted. Ooh, look, there's a tomb. Oh, with the Rudaurin shield on it. Have we seen the crown of Rudaurin a shield before? We've seen Arthedanian tombs, and we've seen Cardolan tombs. <clears throat> and this guy has a king with a spiky crown. Right, so notice that his crown doesn't actually look like the forest crown of Rudaur here, right? Whoa. Y'all all right? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. All of a sudden, everybody was kneeling and uh, looking confused. Um, 
<gasps> Ooh, and I've never noticed that before. Notice these branches that I can never figure out and that I have never yet found a good interpretation of and am still looking for any interpretive suggestions for what these branches that feature so heavily on all of these Arnorian ruins, Rudarin and Arthedanian and Cardolingian alike. Um, anyway, notice how they're all framed around. I never noticed that before. I don't know, maybe it wasn't before, but... Um, I think I would have noticed that anyway, though, <clears throat> how it's framed around almost like a, you know, like a, I don't know, like a floral border around him, right? That's really cool. I'm not sure what to make of that. Well, I'm not sure what to make of that design anywhere. And if I knew, then I would... I still want to count leaves. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I got nothing. Nothing. How many branches? Four branches, vaguely. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Is there seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, no, the front of the tomb is definitely a shield. Uh, with Rudauer on it. I'm trying to look. Is there anything else we can see on the... Huh. I wish I were shorter. Could stare at the shield more square. Let me look at the other side. Oh, that's a little clearer there. In the full, you know, greenish glow of the, the hideous undeadly lights. Um, uh, huh. Forthauntless is wondering, could the branches mark funerary structures? Are they absent from some ruins that would suggest that they're only present at funerary structures? I don't know. Are they? I don't think so. Maybe. It's an interesting theory, anyway. We can follow it up. Ooh, hey, look. Oh, it's a brazier. Right. I thought that was bigger than it was, because I was standing right next to it. How many skeletons? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven skeletons on top of the wall. See, look, notice the branches are on that top row. That's where they usually are. Up there above the arches. They're not universal, but they're so common. Oh, yeah, Katriana, I, I think I've seen them everywhere. I, I don't... It's their universality that makes me so frustrated, you know, because I really wish I understood it better. What's this? Is it a book? Is it a quest object? Looks like a quest object. Um, little pedestal for quest object? Is that a quest object? Tell me that's a quest object. If so, what is it? Why is there a book here? Does anybody remember? As I say, it's been so long since I've done this quest, I don't really recall. That is a book, right? Yeah, that's totally a book. You see the spine. And the curvy corners. Hmm. 
It's not a quest object, Umawe. Huh. That's interesting. That's very interesting. It's not a shrine. I mean, there's nothing around it. I mean, there's like a, it looks like a little altar. Uh, but there's nothing on the wall. I mean, I almost didn't even notice it. I thought it was just a fallen block at first. And then the thing on top, which I thought was just some kind of notch on the stone until I got closer. Weird. On the one hand, it's totally, you know, the focal point here. But on the other hand, it's so plain. The book, too, right? I mean, this doesn't look like... This doesn't look like a demonological tome, you know, this, like, arcane, forbidden lore, right? Uh, it just looks like somebody left the library book here. Um, huh. Huh. Um... Wow. I really have never noticed that before. I have no idea what that book is. Well, that book is a mystery. Okay. So you guys have to try, help me figure out. Do some research on this. See if anybody can figure out why is there a book here. And you're right, Amethorn. They're going to be hosed when they have to pay the library fine on that book. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw a Dragon Rider. I saw the crowns on the ends of the block. It's obviously a rude dart, which suggests, of course, Dragon Rider, great point. It suggests that it's old. This little bench, altar, whatever that is, right? Book pedestal um, is old. It's not a new construction. So this isn't something that was whomped up. Uh, by the current inhabitants, right? Besides which, you can tell that anyway, even without the, the crowns, because the current inhabitants have a, a very peculiar style, right? I mean, like, this is the style of the current inhabitants, right? They go in for spiky, veiny rocks glowing unnatural colors, right? That's what they go in for. Or, uh, spiky iron braziers with also smoke and flames that are unnatural colors. Or they go for spiky arches with hanging cages with skeletons in. Right? Those are the things that are obviously part of the new layer of construction here uh, in the Lone Lands by the current inhabitants. Um, so, uh... Yeah, boy, somebody just knocked all of us out. Why is that happening? Um, so, so yeah, obviously the folks who made this altar did not also make this altar, if altar it be, right? Um, this book pedestal. But see, Pontine, it can't be an ancient relic of somebody who was buried here back in the Rudauran days. 
because that would make that book thousands of years old, and apart from the wildly improbable magnitude of the library finds attached there too, it wouldn't be in this kind of shape, right? I mean, there's no way that a book would, I mean, it wouldn't even be tattered and useless. It would be far beyond tattered and useless, right? If, uh, um, if there were a book that were just sitting here exposed on a stone for many, many years. I mean, like, 1500 years, right? Um, I mean, yeah, it's, if there was a book, like, with paper or parchment pages that had been sitting out on a stone in the open air since the time of, like, the Emperor Constantine, it'd be a wreck <laughs> by now, right? You wouldn't be able to tell it's a book. It would be a pile of dirt by now uh, that, like, grass would be growing on. So, um, yeah, it, it, there's no way. Which means somebody left this library book here recently. I wish there were any markings on it. I really don't think there are. Neither on the cover, nor on the spine. This isn't part of those Ostgaruth riddle quests, is it? With the annoying guy with the brightly colored clothes? The treasure hunters? It's not one of their quests, is it? No? Okay. That's all I could think of. Those would create aberrations of this kind. Yeah, the title covers face down. Yeah. And the spine is unmarked. Oh, man. Okay. Anyway. So I didn't actually even intend to take this long in this ruin. But then we found all these mysteries up here. It's totally worth working our way towards the center of the... Or the defensive uh, center of the... Of this tower. So let's let's take off. Let's go across the way. Let's go into the swamps into the Harlow Egg. Now, is anybody here... Um, hi, Mr. Gaunt person. Um, is anybody here uh, low level? Do we have any, like, people who are going to die hideous and uh, colorful deaths in the uh, swamps with the... Where am I? Am I going to jump off a cliff? Answer is, yes, I'm going to jump off a cliff. Okay. Oh, no. I'm walking into skeletons. Walking into skeletons. Jumping off cliffs. Here we go. Okay. Um, we're walk I think I'm going to take a shortcut here. That's good. Okay. And uh, now we can go down here. Yes. Good. Excellent. And out. Excellent. Very good. Okay. Um, uh, okay. It's a volume of the Mord Darthur. Yeah. Could be a crystal alien. It's possible. Um uh, so um, those of you who are higher level might want to be kind of proactive with our friend. There's going to be a lot of trolls and things down here. So, ah, there's the last bridge. Not quite yet. Um, we'll get to that next. And, ooh, wait, hang on. Little mini ruin over here next to the road. We got to check this out. Because we're about to cross the road. There it is. There's the road. Headed off towards the last bridge. Very good. But right over here we get this little bitty ruin. What can we make of this? Because see, now we're piecing together the story that I'm much less confident in. Oh, yes, we get the nasty scabrous wargs here. Okay, and I see Star 
I'm not seeing crowns. It's the difference. This is the Arthurdanian stone. Look at those branches right up there. Right on cue, right? I think this is Arthurdanian. Just by the coloring, I think it's Arthurdanian, even though I don't. Um, there's not that much to go on here. What the heck was this? Little outpost? Is this Arthurdanian? Uh, like, is this like a guard post? Just like to watch over the road by the bridge? Is this like the break room where the sentries who would be looking over the road and the bridge would... I don't know. Seems impractical in lots of ways. Tollbooth, Eric Hebb, yeah. Possibly a little out of the way for that, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, Fort Thomas, that's why I'm not in a hurry to uh, get to the last bridge, because we'll get there, but we're not there in the text yet, so... Uh, nor will be for a little while. Nah, it won't be that long, actually. Okay. So now we're going down to the Harlowing. So the first thing we notice here is that the, the land falls down uh, very much, so it's not just a little notch in the mountains down here that we're getting, right? It's uh, um, uh, a significant uh, topographical shift from highlands down into lowlands and uh, and wetlands specifically. So what would the Arnorians have done here? If you're Arthodyne and you're controlling the whole southern part of the of the road, including apparently a tollbooth slash guard break room there down near the bridge, the fact that that was Arthodanian and not Rudaran suggests to me that what we're going to find down here in the Harlowig um, is also Arthedanian. Um, oh man, it's getting late. I'm not sure I'm going to have time to fully explore down here, but let's just take a peek. Let's answer the initial question, and then we'll explore more thoroughly down here next time. My initial question being, whose ruins? Whose ruins, and why did we make them? Because, let's face it, we're a little out of the way down here. What is that? Oh, what is that? Wagon? It is a wagon. It's the ruins of a wagon. Who had a wagon down here? This is like the wagons in Waymeet, isn't it? Never noticed that before, did I? one of the nice things about getting old is uh, you know you get to discover things anew it's like doing them for the first time okay uh, right approaching ruins for identification just looking around here there's the whole complex from a distance <laughs> smells like arthodyne yep First of all, isn't it pretty cool that you can identify ruins, the historical provenance of ruins from a distance like this? You just come up and like, oh yeah, Arthodyne every day of the week, right? Watch me be wrong. But I'm pretty sure we're not going to see... If we are, I'm going to get super interested. But that's not going to be a crown. That's going to be a star. Yeah, bam! Oh... That's right. 
That is right. See, there it is. Um, absolutely. See, and you can tell from the coloration, right? Totally different, totally different structure, totally different style, totally different uh, tint of stone, right? You could tell these were Arthurdanian. Okay, this is a really complicated complex here. Oh, hey, Gamey Cactus. Welcome. So you're downloading the game? That is awesome. Oh, man, so many hours of wonderfully rich Tolkien fun you have ahead of you. I'm telling you, take nothing for granted uh, because this game has been so lovingly constructed, um, so thoughtfully engaged with the books. It's just awesome. Uh -huh. Look at this guy here. He's got a shield with five stars. Okay. And he also has the boundary of the vines there. And he's also wearing a crown, which is intriguing. Um, and the upward pointed star. No. No. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. This can't be cartilingian. No. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that would be amazing. This wouldn't be Cardolan down here, would it? I would love that. Oh. Yeah, okay. All right. Whew. Oh, this is, this is exciting. This is exciting. Um, okay. All right. All right. We'll explore this more fully next time. It is way too late to do a full exploration of the ruins down here because they're very complicated. Um, but we'll look around down here more next time. But wow, wow, wow. Okay. That is a status that I did not see that coming. And I'm not 100% sure that I am seeing what I'm seeing. Um, but it's at least possible. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, everywhere I look, my theory is being confirmed. So, okay. All right. We'll talk more about this next time. Um, so we'll come back to the Harlowig next time for our next field trip, and we'll continue around here, and then we'll head up to Gartha Garwin and explore more around in there. Um, and then if we still haven't gotten to the last bridge and onto the, into the Trollshaws yet, then I'll go back up. And remember, we still have to finish our tour of, uh, of uh, Angmar, which we were in the middle of, too, which is going to be our filler for those times when we're waiting to progress equally in the books. Um, anyhow, okay. Thanks very much, everybody, for joining me. That was a super fun class, and I will see you guys uh, next week. I will be around next week. Yes, I will. And don't forget, Tuesday... Tuesday. Don't forget Saturday the 22nd, uh, our uh, Hobbiday reading event, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, right here on our Twitch channel. Um, you can also go to signumuniversity.org uh, slash donate, uh, or slash fund also, and you'll be able to see the events, and there's a registration link there. Uh, and follow us on social media, and you'll figure that out. Or just follow our Twitch channel, and you'll get a notification, and it will all be easy. Thanks, everybody. I will see you guys next week. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.